everybody, and welcome back to Bond by Numbers. This is the end of our three non-Bonds mini-series for this, our third series, and we're really excited to be here to talk about Josh's choice, Charade, or if you prefer, Charade, depending on what side of the ocean you come from. But one thing that cannot be denied, regardless of how you pronounce it, is that we're talking about Stanley Donen's 1963 screwball comedy come spy thriller come action adventure something something. Hybrid spy screwball comedy suspense thriller. But I'm going to lay down the line and say now that we're going to call it charade for the rest of the uh, episode. Even though I might use the word charade during certain sequences. I'm not. I'm just going to call it uh, charade the entire time. <laughs> okay. Well, we can call it what we want, you know, no. because you know what? Because it's, it's a story about people having different names. And, and why not the movie having a different name as well? well let's be honest. If they really it's, wanted it's, us to know, they would have put it on the poster and the bottom being like, FYI, for all the moviegoers, it's pronounced this way. <laughs> it, That's it, right. It Learned really is. Yeah. So, yes, this is uh, Josh, the BFG, and uh, with me is uh, Jeff, the Jeff. Yeah. Uh, Jeff. I mean, that's appro- it's appropriate. That's- it's very sounds like a doctor, a doctor true to life. character. So, um, <laughs> you know, I do resemble that comment, so uh, I'll take it. Yeah, uh. yeah, it's to- totally. You definitely do. You got a bit of a Lorax thing going right now. Um, and I do not want and, to steal your thunder, Josh, but it might be fair yes, at David this point Caruso to say sunglasses. <laughs> it might be. It might be fair to say that <laughs> I am Scott the Scott. Well, there you go. Or Matt. Or Matt Murdock. I'll, I'll go with yeah. that too. You are a ginger with with like blind man sunglasses on, so. Yeah, they're making fun of my outfit today, and it's very hot in Scotland. We've gone through what's probably, to my memory, the hottest kind of stretch of 10, 12 days of weather for a long time now. Really? Um, British Columbia says, hold my beer. I know. I understand that. It does. But I am speaking from a Scottish perspective. You know, the, the heat here has been uh, quite tough because, you know, the infrastructure for most most homes, most of society here domestically, is not air conditioning as yeah. standard. And so if you live in a two or three story house and you've got no way of ventilating with cool air, then you're blowing hot air all over the place. Nights are tough to sleep in, but it's hot here in Scotland. And yes, okay, yes, I thought I would channel my inner Felix Leiter, put on <laughs> a garish shirt. tropical shirt. <laughs> Felix Leiter, yeah, that's good. You know, I, I like that. I'm, I'm, I like I'm okay that. with no, what I'm cool. wearing, gentlemen. Um, and I'm also getting ready for a pool party at the end of this recording oh, session. Okay. When I say pool party, I mean kitty splash pool at the in-laws. Which I you should have just left it at a pool party, but that's fine. I get it. I should have. You're right. It makes me seem. Uh, Otherwise, less... it was just a charade. <laughs> yeah, charade. That's true. Charade. 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 <laughs> anyway, yes. Thanks everybody yeah. for joining us. This is the end of our three non bonds for the season. This, this is the end a... for this. Yeah, this is the end. friend. <sighs> and uh, I'm looking forward to this, guys. I think that we've done pretty well so far. Starting off with the Quiller Memorandum. Double O Chapman's choice. Moving on to Torn Curtain, which was my selection, even though I didn't really like it that much. I had a lot of fun talking it over with you. Yeah. And now we're on to Josh with the final choice of Stanley Donen's 1963 genre mystifying. Sure, right. Yeah, I've always saw this like in list of top 10 greatest like uh, movies as well as like uh, thrillers and whatnot. And I was very... Uh, surprised by, you know, this has always been commented on the best Alfred Hitchcock movie that Alfred Hitchcock didn't direct. 
Hmm. Yeah, you so said that in the I last always, episode. I, mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't say that. I'm paraphrasing oh, something okay. else that I that, that that I read in like in the critical uh, comment ab- about the film. Uh, but yeah, so it's, I, I noticed that this film has been been around and stuff. I know it had a Criterion release. I did hear about that. So I was always very curious about this film. I've seen a couple of Cary Grant films before. I've seen like Notorious. I've seen. Uh, my His Girl Friday and North by Northwest. Mm. So I really do like Cary Grant. Mm. Uh, I I recently saw To Catch a Thief, and that blew me away. That's like up there in my that's up there in my top right now. Have like, you seen the Bishop? And, and that's probably I have mm. not seen the Bishop. That's, that's a great one. That too, is amazing. Also has David Lean. Good show. I that's mm-hmm. now one of my favorite Christmas movies. To be honest with you, it's a good one. Anyways, nice. It really is yeah, a good for, one. Yeah, we're talking Cary Grant. Like man, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. He plays but, uh, the other man to David Niven, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Yeah, so I was just curious about this film, and it was, and I figure, you know, with Jeff's very random Quiller memorandum pick, <laughs> and then of course Scott giving us a non-traditional Hitchcock favorite. Uh, well, Hitchcock selection, I should say. Favorite is a bit debated when it comes to Corn <laughs> Curtain. Uh, I figured, you know, I'll, I'll I'll choose this movie, and you know, I was going to go, you know, I was going to go like, well, you know, we haven't really looked at the Jason Bourne series yet. Why don't I just do the Bourne Identity or something like that, right? Or even something like uh, the very like '60s Bond, uh, Ken Adam influenced uh, X Men First Class or something like that. I was thinking of just uh, the idea of like matching that aesthetic, but then I thought about Charade, and then I was like, you know what? Let's let's do it. Let's do Charade. So I chose that film, and uh, yeah, I think it was a good selection. I like how all of our movies, guys, they're all in the 60s. Well, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, around, that's good, yeah. And, uh, around the same time, yeah. Like, we got very unconventional picks, and I really like that. I don't know if yeah. some of our audience members were expecting, you know, something a little more familiar. Uh, everyone likes to see, you know, reactions on YouTube to their favorite movies and stuff like that. So maybe some people, you know, thought, well, what are these movies, right? But you, know, but you know what? We understand that. But we also say, well, you know, try these out and see what you think of these and expand your horizons. So there you go. I was thinking, I, like, maybe it was good that we kind of stuck to the 60s. It doesn't matter, but it just ended up that way, just so it would be sort of – we could sort of discuss how it's similar to the genre of the time or be, it being contemporary. Obviously, it, it didn't have to be, but, I mean, ironically enough, we did check off that box. <laughs> so, but that, yeah. you know, it was fun. I think it worked out pretty well. <laughs> yeah. But in addition to Charade, we have a pretty uh, action-packed show today. Uh, in the world of Bond, Scott's going to be talking about his latest read, uh, Sertorial Guide to James Bond. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about From Tailors with Love, which is the evolution of menswear through the Bond films by Pete Bricker and Matt Spazer. Now, Matt Spazer has the uh, Bond Suits blog that we've re- referenced in the show before. We have a lot of fun with. Is this the same one that allows you to torture me and Jeff? Is that, is, course, that the, is that the yeah, same individual? Yeah. Of, course. of course it is. So yeah, that's yeah. like the literary, and like, Iron Maiden for me. <laughs> Look, guys, you, you, run I mean, for Iron Maiden is literary. Jeff, run for the hills. Yeah, exactly. You do not remember those clothes quiz experiences, opportunities, really, in quite the same way that I do. Because, do you know what? You did them. better on them. You did better on them than you think you did. I, I'm sure if you went back and listened to our, uh, our, our clothes words. quizzes... You, <laughs> we actually did. You passed I, more I than you failed. You passed more than you failed. That and sums I don't up my high school. Writing, I don't remember writing more than two or three letters home to your parents. <laughs> Good. I, I really don't. I, th- I think it was just a couple of failures. But yes, uh, jokes aside, I did 
I did recently obtain, as we mentioned on the show, I think a couple of episodes ago, um, the, my copy of uh, from Taylor's with Love, the new book by Pete Brooker and Matt Spazer. Uh, Matt does have the Bond Suits blog, and Pete Brooker is behind the podcast from Taylor's with Love. And this was a book that um, is kind of on our radar for a while because both gentlemen were speaking about it in the work that they were doing. You know, their their socials were quite full up with uh, evidence of their research and evidence of their their you know the sort of publication weights and uh, the redrafts and the edits and things. And so when the book came out um, earlier this year, I was really quite excited to get it. And I know many in the Bond community have already gotten and enjoyed it. And Although last time we spoke, guys, I think maybe I was just 100 pages in, since finishing the book now, I've put together some thoughts, and I'd like to, uh, I'd, I'd just like to share with listeners information about the text if they don't yeah. already have themselves a copy, and um, really encourage everybody listening to go grab one, because it, it was a really good read, and um, yeah, I think that it's a continuation of the good work that Pete and Matt are doing, in, not just in the Bond community, really, but um, in terms of their their interest in menswear and in their their interest in fashion and uh, kind of cultural norms and shifts like it, it's really Nothing really wrong good with male sophisticated comportment that's what i say that's right josh there's not um and i well, do yeah, like your game of thrones t-shirt by the way thank you uh it yeah. um from the you know the quizzes and all that kind of stuff and other little blurbs and, and shout outs you've given to that book it's it's quite it's quite interesting and uh, i think from what you're saying and from what we've heard from it and the excerpts, it, it would actually, even if you're not a up on Bond or fashion, it just seems like a fun read anyway. So people that are just like, I want a book that I'm not familiar with, even a genre mm -hmm. or whatever, just open up mm -hmm. my eyes and just want something different. That's what this book, I think, could also probably um, work for, for people that are just looking for a fun read. Like, just like, I want something I different. And that's what it seems like. Also... It ties in really too good to our show well, today yeah, because I mean, does. Charade uh, stars probably one of the most, uh, one of the greatest fashion yeah. icons, two, you know, two of the twentieth century. Even Cary Grant, yeah, Cary Grant, and his suits, think of like North Audrey by Hubbard. Northwest, all that kind of stuff. Like his that yeah. gray suit he had, man, that suit. Yeah, like Edith Head was costume designer, I, I, I believe, for this film. Although the the costumes for Audrey Hepburn were pure Gavenchi, which makes total sense. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I pronounced that right. Is it Gavenchi? I thought it was Givenchy. Or Givenchy? I think it's Givenchy. Okay, but... Hubert Givenchy. That, that that would make sense. But they've always had a relationship together. Her and uh, Givenchy. They would. She would basically design clothes with him, and she helped design half her wardrobe in this movie. But speaking of the men's sartorial stuff, though, yeah, Cary Grant looked. Fantastic always. in this movie. Like does. the guy is fifty nine when he was making this movie, and he looks like you know, like he's just so dapper, and he was in really good shape as well. And the suits fit him so well. Mm -hmm. I love that white coat that he has, like the, in in the last half oh, of the yeah. film, mm -hmm. uh, the mm -hmm. last quarter of the film. That that was really good. And man, like the pajamas was pretty darn good too. I mean, her pajamas. Well, Cary Grant was Cary Grant was offered the part of Bond, remember, but uh, they wanted yes. someone to do multiple films and he he wanted the one and done sort of thing but only a year or so previous to this film let's just clear the stage here for a moment and, and i'll just share with you my, my thoughts on this you know 
look out your Christmas stockings, okay? Because we might get you a couple of copies of this. Santa might deliver a couple of copies of this book for you guys. It's a good thing I have an yes. Alvin and the Chipmunk size stocking that that book could fit in it. Just so you, you know. <laughs> that's right. You know yeah. what? If James yeah. Bond can teach me how to dress properly, i.e., intellectual property T-shirts, you know, outside <laughs> of that, I, I, I think I'll be good. Okay. Um, I'd start with underwear, Josh. I'm just putting that out there, but start with your underwear. This is why webcams are a no-no, guys. <laughs> Below the waist. Right. Okay, guys, right. I'm not tubing. So check it out, okay? I'm a big Bond fan, and no way. I'm into dressing smart when what? I can. I, I suppose partly because of my job, right? My education job. Fair. Okay, fair, fair enough. Mm-hmm. But also partly, I think, because of my upbringing and my dad's work. You know, dad was, was business dress Your all dad, the time. Yeah, definitely, and, yeah. And, you know, I think those are some influences, right? But mm-hmm. it goes without saying, just to preface this, we're all on a Bond show, right? we got a Bond podcast. We're big fans. We're going to be in support of something like this anyway. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we've referenced Matt and Pete on the show before, and we're big fans of their work. But I'd, I'd just like to say a few things and try to frame my review from the context of maybe like a, a, a not crazy Bond fan who would buy the book anyway, but instead maybe just like you're saying, Jeff, a more sartorial minded or willing to learn reader, because I think there's a lot in here to appeal to the general readership as well. First of all, there's a a logical chronology to the structure of the book, okay, which is hinted, of course, very clearly in the title, Evolution. We know we're going to start at the beginning and end up more towards the current day, um, through the Bond franchise, at least. But instead of just kind of being a shopping list of who did what for what film and what each Bond actor wore, Brooker and Spazier, they dedicate a lot of their energy into contextualizing the environments of fashion around the films and sort of how each actor brought his own personality and, in some cases, team into the production and into the fashion. So, for example, like not all of the Bonds had equal interest or voice in their clothing and their tailoring choices. Now, last year, you remember we started season two off with an episode on on Terrence Young, and we know, uh, shameless plug, go check that episode out. We had a lot of fun doing that one. Um, It's our podcast, we're to do that. That's true. He held Connery's hand, right, in these early steps of kind of how to wear your suit and what you should do with it and kind of how you walk and how you talk and stuff like that, right? So even into From Russia With Love, that comfort was being grown for Connery. Whereas a guy like Roger Moore, he dressed to kill all the time and he was very interested in in the sort of sartorial ways. Like he was also aware that when he stepped off a plane, people would expect him to be Roger Moore and he couldn't be Roger Moore in a pair of jeans. And so he always dressed well and he always had good people around him to help him do that too. But he knew what he liked and, and that was Roger Moore. But I guess my point here before going off is, is that not all bonds were equal in terms of what they brought to the stage with their Correct. fashion choices and yeah, their experiences. Okay. Now, because the co-authors are bond fans themselves, they work hard to concentrate on the relationships and the stories behind the clothes as much as the designs and the cuts, the suits themselves. Which as is a big such, part of costume design mm, as well. Yeah, of, of course it is. Exactly. But because they're bond fans, I found that the book read kind of like kind of like a lovingly designed behind the scenes feature. But even in even in the sort of denser moments where they're showing off their expertise in fashion and in menswear and in cloth style and cuts and sort of, you know, the finer points of tailoring, it's easy to sense the author's appreciation of and joy for their, their subject. And I think that's a good thing whenever you're reading a text that comes through. Oh, yeah. In credit to the writers, I didn't find at least 
that the prose ever ever reached like a stuffiness or a up itself exclusive level and that's that's impressive when you're talking about yeah, menswear about when you're talking menswear about fashion, you know and the, and the type yeah. of menswear because you're talking about james bond who is always dressed to the nines exactly. or going somewhere mm-hmm. like monaco where there's going to be a dress code or whatever yeah so yeah that's bingo that's a good that's a good point and i haven't said that though i mean there will be and there were for me terms and expressions that you know readers might not necessarily know or understand upon first glance if they're like a little wet behind the ears or something right with with, with this type of this type of world but mm. there is a generous wealth of imagery and silhouettes and diagrams graphic mm. renderings that help oh, you wow, understand okay. sort of the suits the differences the cuts um and and all these sartorial points are demonstrated with a lot of good imagery and conversation and another reason that i would recommend this book guys is for what i found was kind of unexpected, but you get a really colorful snapshot of like the competition, the Savile Row competitions and the culture mm. of fashion during the 60s, the 70s, okay. and 80s. Um, particularly the 60s and 70s, I find, are maybe not better dealt with, but uh, they were very transformative years in terms of fashion. Um, the inspirations behind most of Bond's famous outfits is is obviously revealed in the book, as well as um, the applause for sort of the teams behind the designers. So it's not just like the big names, you know, mm. but also the people who worked with them and worked to support the sort of images that they were they were keen to present. Um, most impressive, maybe. I think the book is fueled by really, really good research. I've already said that, I know, but there's a lot of charming anecdote in here, a lot of personality that's, that, that's generated through strong interviews, particularly of those figures who we learn stories about. Now, as for Brooker and Spazer themselves, I reckon that there's a purpose to elucidate behind this text. Like, I think there's almost that sort of didactic tone where they want to kind of educate without educating. You know, you just want to kind of teach mm-hmm, something, mm-hmm. but but not be too kind of heavy handed in it. Um, kind of like they're motivated to deconstruct the mythos of Bond clothes instead of sort of glorify it and sort of uphold it as some beautiful thing. Like, I feel as though there's a real nice objective uh, analysis of the clothes. That's um, that's always good. You you you, yeah. you, you want to show your passion, but you also want to show that you're not a, just a fanboy. Mm-hmm. This is actually yeah. something that you take seriously, and your passion is justified. And mm-hmm. you want to mm-hmm. share that with other people. But to do that, I think you also you can't overhype things too. You know, absolutely, Josh. Um, and let's let's face it, right? I mean, most of the clothes the everyday Bond fan is not going to own, we're not going to rent, and we're not going to wear, probably, right? Because these are expensive, oh. bespoke pieces of, of clothing. But the authors manage, to their credit, I think, to speak about the clothes without this sort of sycophancy or glorifying it too much. And I really did find that refreshing because I didn't want to be greeted with like a shameless Rob Report style of writing that kind of sneered reminders from above that here's a pair of Gucci shoes you're never going to wear. There's a, a three-piece uh, Anthony Seclair suit that you're never going to get near. It wasn't really like that. Like the guys really treat the reader with respect. And I, I felt at least as though they stayed a bit distant from celebrating the clothes overtly and yielded stage space for interviewees to offer those accolades themselves. Like, you know, that's let, let smart. people who are behind it to do it. So mm. I was glad that it, I wasn't reading just opinions of what they thought was the greatest. There is no favorites list for the authors in here. And I really like that, you know? Well, I, I really think objective. I think you're right because yeah. I think it would just almost come off as elitist and like something I, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it might yeah. turn off a lot of readers because you'd be like, well, yeah, totally. I'm never ever gonna get. I mean, let's be honest, yeah. the majority of us are never gonna be able to get those suits. But um, mm-hmm. 
it, it makes it so it is a little more um, accessible for the reader. So it's not just like, yes. we understand that 95% of the people reading this will never have a chance to go and, and get this type of suit from Savile Row or wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, but it's still like, in case... This is how you do it. So they have to, you have exactly. to do it at a, at a you and this know, is how a certain it was way. Done. There's a yeah, you know what I mean. So and it, I'm mm. sure that there's a, there's like diplomacy on how to do that. <laughs> and that diplomacy, I think, is gained with more than just a modicum of success, Jeff. I, I like like I said before, that that's down to their appreciation for the subject, yes, but also their research. Like mm. the better researched you are in a subject, the more objective I think you can become in it. Right? That that goes with it. Scott's saying, a but, teacher. But yes, you're right. And I agree with that statement 100%. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that readers will get a really good survey of men's fashion without ever moving too far away from the Bond world. Mm-hmm. But there's enough divergence to keep things fresh for history readers, to keep things fresh for just general readers yeah. who want to know London art at the history. time of the 60s. Exactly, Josh. Art history, all this sort of stuff. Like you, can, you will learn stuff about this, whether you know a lot about the Bond clothes or not. And if you want to learn more about the Bond clothes, it's logically, chronologically structured, which uh, offers us, you know, ways to almost use it like an encyclopedia. Like, oh, I'm watching, uh, uh, well, we're going to watch, you know, License to Kill. Okay, let's see what was going on then. You can turn to that chapter. That's great. Yeah. It it works really well. And I should also say that out of my respect for the no spoilers philosophy that I'm I'm trying to live by with no time to die, I did not read the final pages of this book that dedicated themselves to that text. Yeah, but um, I've no doubt that it's as effectively written and researched as the previous chapters. These guys really do know their stuff. And a look at their bibliography at the end of the book. It, it's uh, it's a good read in itself. It really shows the fantastic research and secondary source citing that they went through for this. And um, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in here that you could find um, like a breadcrumb and go away and look at it yourself too if you wanted to. All the names, all the sources are there. Just like the great show notes that are left in you know their podcast episodes, right? Um, I, I, I think in summation, guys, this is a book that should be on every Bond fan's shelf, but also anybody who's just interested in learning more about men's fashion at this time. And yeah, I've really, really enjoyed it. I credit the guys. Hats off to you for, for taking what you do uh, through your blog and the podcast and putting it into a really good academic at times, but always readable. Uh, and as you say, Jeff, accessible text. Um, yeah, really, really good. Um are you gonna afraid, uh, be afraid that the final chapter uh, about the fashion is going to be so out of date, like it's going to be out of fashion because we waited this <laughs> I long? I know, for right? The film? Six years between films, <laughs> the, the movie's taking how long That's to come true. out? Like, is is the fashion going to be passe? <laughs> you wonder, eh? Jeez, oh, I know. Well, yeah, we watched like older Bond films, like Goldfinger, or in the seventies, we watched The Spy Who Loved Me, and there's clearly fashion differences from now to then. So it's just a matter of we just got to consider where this when this movie took exactly. place, just like when this movie was filmed. Sorry, and just as we got to think about you know when Skyfall was filmed or when Casino Royale was filmed, different styles and, and dress and yeah. fashion at the time, right? So and that's why the book is so interesting because you do get to sort of visit these periods, visit these eras, I guess eras is the better word because it's specific to actor and time. Um, but I, I learned some really interesting things in the story. And I just thought for listeners and for yourselves, guys, because, you know, Santa's coming soon. Um, I, I just <laughs> share some that. potpourri. One, one, one or two points from each actor. That's it. It won't take us long at all. But here's a little something from the Connery era that I gleaned from the book. Okay. Mm-hmm. John Hilling was a wardrobe master for Goldfinger. All right. And in that pre-title sequence where Connery steps out of the wetsuit in the, you know, the white dinner jacket and the carnation and all that stuff, right? Oh, it, 
he had to make a special nylon wetsuit. So it's not a wetsuit at all because there's no way that you can step out of a wetsuit and have that suit on, you know, underneath it. So exactly. Mm, some really cool work done there by John Hilling. Um, in terms of Lazenby, something I took from that period, uh, that the kilt Bond wears in the Alpine room at Piz Gloria, as Sir Hilary Bray, is the black the black watch tartan, which is a popular tartan. Mm, yes, it's a it military is. tartan, yep. but it's also one of the tartans, and there's a number of them, that can be worn if the wearer doesn't have an allegiance or a tartan of is their own. Same with, isn't that almost like the most common? Uh, that you can wear if you don't have your own sort of thing, right? Because there are some. Um, yes. Also, just a neat point here. After the production on Her Majesty's Secret Service wrapped, John Glenn was allowed to pick whatever he wanted to take home with him from the clothes. And he chose to take home um, the brown astrakhan fur coat, which was worn by Blofeld oh, on Pace Gloria. Nice. Now, he remembers Ooh. it. He remembers it this way. And I quote here from the book. This is an interview with John Glenn. I took it, I wore it a few times, but I just threw it away after a while. I just didn't know. <laughs> what? Back then, no one was thinking about how important these clothes were. That's what John Glenn said. I anyway. love that for Interesting. I know. Think about how much that would fetch now, hey? I feel because like if I wore that now, I would just look like Chevy Chase and, you know, We Were Spies. Uh, <laughs> I was like thinking us. maybe spies he took like Diana Riggs' yeah, coat instead, but but then you said Telly Savalas, so, yeah. so I was yeah. like, okay. Uh, Roger Moore. I think she looked, she looked talk- pretty good in that fur coat, too. She did. Uh, but John Glenn wouldn't have picked that up for himself. Well, yeah. maybe and she maybe had he like would, the Gwen Stacy hairband. Yeah. yeah, it's that it's that look she had with like the Gwen Stacy hairband and like the fur coat. Oh, yeah. And she had like the Russian hat on top too. I think that was at that combined look and stuff. And you know, running those stock cars off the track, right? So, mm-hmm. number three, Roger Moore. Of course, guys, we probably talked about this with Live and Let Die, but he started his tenure by bringing his own tailor, who was Cyril Castle. He dressed more in the Saint and the Persuaders. He brought him onto the uh, into the Bond world by bringing him with him, and he was a friend to many of his clients, not just. So he wasn't a, a snob, dude. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned snob. Frank Foster, the shirt maker, man. The stories that are told and the, sort of the quotes, the sound bites that come out of what Frank Foster says about he stuffed his own things, shirts. Then people. I guess right? <laughs> he did. He stuffed his own shirts. <laughs> Uh, Timothy Dalton, guys, I spoke to you about this earlier in the week, very uncomfortably dressed as 007 in um, The Living Daylights, particularly the scene in the safe house at Stoner Park. He was trying to make this three-piece kind of power suit. I think it was a three-piece suit um, with padding, look less worn. So he was like kind of ripping out the stuffing in the shoulder pads and trying to ruffle up his shirt and everything. Uh-huh. And John Glenn remembers having to talk to him a couple of times about, you know, just toning down the realism a little bit and realizing that, look, Bond has got to look good. If you're going to play him, he's got to look good. But right. Dalton was always Dalton's sort of- going all convinced. Yeah, he's getting all <laughs> yeah. mental. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, almost there. Barbara I really wanted to. Be, yeah, Sorry? I really think Dalton, if he was given the chance, Dalton would have totally have took on Michael Corleone if he was given if he was given the opportunity. Yeah, he probably would have. You think? I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't think he'd shy away from a fight with him. I don't know that he would yeah. win, but. Uh, Barbara Broccoli, guys, when it came time for um, Brosnan, Broccoli personally brought designer Lindy Hemming on board with GoldenEye after being impressed with her work on Four Weddings and a Funeral. Mm. Also, the Brosnan era decided to go with Brioni, the Italian suit maker, instead of Savile Row or a London business because London refused to create 19 identical suits for GoldenEye all but one of which would be ruined. They weren't willing to do that much bespoke work for free advertising. So the contract Mm. went to Brioni, and Brioni dressed uh, Brosnan in all of his films. So that would have been sort of a, you know, stick up 
Yeah. The finger there. So didn't Bryony also handle the Craig era at some point? Yes, I believe he did, Tom yeah. Ford was the guy that took over, but I, th- I thought Brioni was also on that too. Brioni did the Casino Royale stuff, and then Tom Ford took over after that when Mendes came in. Um, but yeah, uh, oh, interesting point. This was a point I'd saved there, Josh, about uh, about the Craig era. Um, you know that floral print uh, shirt that Craig wears during the parkour post oh, yeah. sequence in Casino Royale, right? Um, yeah. That, that's made with 100% cotton Tana lawn. Now, that's an exclusive cloth from a company called Liberty, and it's named after Lake Tana in the Sudan, where the cotton was originally sourced. It's about 5,000 pounds for a roll of fabric. One roll constitutes about 300 meters. And it was, uh, yeah, I think there's still, after the market dropped for it, I, th- I think the, in the, there's a note in the book that the, um, the fabric is still there. Anyway, look. I've already gone on a bit too long and and butchered some of these stories up. The guys write about it much better in the book than I'm talking about it. And I strongly encourage everybody who just wants a nice nonfiction read um, and an an insightful and an educational and an entertaining story, lots of personality, great diagrams to... uh, I know that it's a podcast and it doesn't do well for for people who are... um, you know, listening, but you can see that, guys, that, you know, you, you get the cuts and kind of the information about the suits. I am looking sort of, at a photo yeah, on works. the screen of a suit diagram, and it looks wonderful. Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of great it's stuff. It's showing you all the parts of the suit, you know, that, mm-hmm. you know, I always, always, you know, had trouble with my writing, you know, like, how do I describe suits in my writing? And if you don't actually research that, like, for a certain sequence in your book or whatever that you're writing, it's going to come off. He wears a suit. But I mean... <laughs> what type of suit? Grabs him by the lapels. Oh, I don't even know. <laughs> are there, are there, are the lapels like down by the by the by the breasts, or are they like further up the neck? Like where are the lapels? How is he where wearing the, the suit? Is it too large how for is him? He, exactly. So it's, I think that's very useful to have, just in for general life as well. Just you know, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I think you're selling so, all the good reasons why someone should pick up a copy of this book. And uh, once yeah. again, pick it up. From Taylors with Love, an evolution of menswear through the Bond films. You will not be disappointed. And check out From Taylors with Love podcast. It's a great show. Uh, Pete Brooker on the socials there and Matt Spazer's Bond Suits blog. Awesome. Right, that's it. All so, right, guys, Scott. let's move in now and let's batter it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Let's do it. All right. So, yeah, thanks for that, Scott. Uh, you definitely piqued my interest. Uh, uh, both me and Scott have been reading some good books lately, it seems. Um, I recently read The Dutch Girl, uh, which I will be talking about today. Uh, it's a book about one of the cast members of Charade, our, our, our film that we chose. And uh, it'll make you look at that actor in a way that you never did before. So uh, I'll get into that. But uh, before we do that, I want to get into the production of Charade. So 1963, it's directed by Stanley Donan. Now, he's known for such films as On the Town, Royal Wedding, Singing in the Rain, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, Funny Face, Damn Yankees. uh, And he is a renowned and musical director and choreographer. So, a suspense, a Hitchcockian suspense thriller? Is he the best choice for charade? Well, for this type of movie, he definitely was, in my opinion. Uh, connection with the, some of the cast, of course, is that he directed Funny Face, which starred uh, Audrey Hepburn, uh, which was 1957, I believe. The screenplay for uh, charade was by Peter Stone and Mark Bame. 
Uh, they were unable to sell it in Hollywood, so Stone released it as a novel, which was called The Unsuspecting Wife. And it was released as a serial in Red Book magazine as Charade. But the serial became popular, as was their expectation, and then the rights were sold to, the, to producer-director Stanley Donan. Uh, this was mission accomplished for them, for Stone and Beam, that is. Uh, so, they, so when they wrote up the new screenplay, it was made to fit Donan's chosen stars, Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn. Yes, yeah, so basically they filmed this in the fall of 1962 in Paris. I believe the studio, I wasn't able to find out exactly, but the studio location, the studios, the, the, the sets, I'm not, I, I believe, I, I'm not sure where they were filmed, but there was, it was filmed on location in Paris, as we can plainly see. Uh, there was very little green screen uh, in the film, to be honest. Um, and this was filmed in the fall of 1962. And at the same time, Audrey Hepburn was filming Paris When It Sizzles uh, just in the, summer, in the summer, and she was there. But even though Paris When It Sizzles was filmed before, it was delayed and was, it was released after Charade. So while she consecutively, so while chronologically, Hep, in the Hepburn, I guess, filmography, uh, she filmed Paris When It, when it Sizzles first. Charade was actually, is actually takes precedence in release uh, over that film. Now, there was some fun facts that I read about the production. Uh, there's a line in the, in, in the film where Audrey Hepburn says, at any moment, we could be assassinated. And at the time, when this was released in December 1963, a certain president had just been assassinated. And so the line was dubbed in at the time, saying, at any moment, we could be eliminated. Hmm. Cary Grant, as I mentioned earlier, was 59. Mm-hmm. So he was not too comfortable about the age gap between he and Audrey Hepburn. And this kind of is interesting because this kind of touches on something about Audrey Hepburn's films herself is that in the 50s, I would say her youngest leading, her I, don't, I think her youngest male lead was Gregory Peck in Roman Holiday. I mean, in an earlier film that she did, uh, The Lavender Hill Mob, she was like, a, like a, a, I think like a, a, a call girl with Alec Guinness. So, I mean, uh, and then of course you have, you know, William Holden and Humphrey Bogart in Sabrina after her. So this was something about her career and Grant was at 59 was very uncomfortable with this. So the screenplay was changed a little bit to make him feel happy uh, to, to accommodate, you know, his demand. And so it makes Reggie kind of thirsty for uh, Peter slash Alex slash Adam slash Brian instead of vice versa. So that explains why she was always, you know, determined to uh, believe him, I guess, no matter what happened in, in the story, you could say. Mm-hmm. Another, a couple other things, too. The editing was by Jim Clark, who did Marathon Man, The Killing Fields, and Vera Drake. Cinematography was by Charles Lang, uh, best known for, like, uh, that, the, the noir, uh, The Big Heat. Uh, then you have, he also did Sabrina, Gunfight at the OK Corral, Some Like It Hot, Magnificent Seven. Gunfight so, at the OK Corral. That is, by the way, um, sorry, that just came into my head. That is a Dimitri Tiomkin score that's definitely worth checking out. I'm sorry, Josh. Um, 
<laughs> Tiomkin, it's so funny to me how the sound of America was created by all of these Eastern European and, you know, Central European composers oh, who came over and created Americana. Like, it's it's incredible to me. And Tiomkin's <laughs> yeah. a great example. He did the Alamo, and, you know, he did all of these uh, okay. big Western films. But okay, and the Comancheros, right, you know, but Bernstein. Oh, yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry, yeah. sorry. They made some great music over here and, and yeah. great films over here as well. Speaking of score, the music was by Henry Mancini. Uh, we talked about it in the last episode. He had won previously, uh, the previous year for Breakfast at Tiffany's. Uh, it was only, he was nominated for like best uh, song for the film. Uh, the budget for the movie was $3 million and it earned over $13.4 million. It's pretty good. Positive re- reviews uh, for the film when it released in December. Bosley Crowther of the New York Times uh, in a January 6, 64. Uh, yeah. He said the film was, he criticized it for grisly touches, gruesome violence, but loved the screenplay. And he likes the sudden twists, shocking gags, eccentric arrangements, occasionally bright and brittle lines, and Donin's direction. Uh, I think he was one of the ones that wasn't, uh, that found that, like, uh, he was one of the ones that kind of criticized Hepburn. Uh, he's liked her way before, like in other films, but he said that she was kind of like just reacting to everyone being nuts in the movie was kind of the way that I would paraphrase it. I think it's a little deeper than that, but, you know, you see what you see, right? Mm-hmm. Uh the movie, as I said, Oscar noms, no wins, Golden Globes, noms, no wins, BAFTA Awards for Grant and Hepburn. Grant was nominated, Hepburn won. Uh, the film is actually in public domain since its release in the United States. It's a mm-hmm. film that you can show anywhere you want, get it anywhere with you want. Like, you know, you don't have to pay for it on Amazon if you don't want to. Or pay $42 for a Criterion Collection edition of it. So there you go. 42 bucks man for a dvd that that scene or a blu-ray uh I, know. I don't know like i know i know moving forward though the soundtrack by mancini it was number six on the billboards pop album chart uh so that's really the the main notes about charade we got carrie grant audrey hepburn walter Matthau, james coburn uh really big really good cast in this movie of of, of some uh, and george kennedy as well who was in mm-hmm. the Iger sanction as we discussed before so that's really uh, the production notes for Charade. Uh, I want to talk about now, uh, you know, Scott talked about, you know, the book, The Tailors with Love. I recently read a book called The Dutch Girl by Robert Matson. It's nonfiction. It's the true story of Audrey Hepburn's time in Holland during the Second World War, where she was, in fact, a member of the Dutch resistance or at least participated as a lot of young children, uh, older children did at the time in the Dutch resistance. I mean, she wasn't out there doing assassinations and sabotages and mm-hmm. stuff, no. but she did play her part. And she did also live through uh, incredible privation and terror through that entire time period as well. Um, and that had a great effect on her life and who she became as a person. You know, we know this Audrey Hepburn as like this great fashion icon, this women's role model. Um, you know, we know her, you know, for her charming personality and all this sort of stuff. But there's a lot of a history in there that a lot of people aren't really familiar with and about who she is as a person. So I'm going to go through uh, just a, and I think in terms of, you know, as a James Bond podcast, we're talking about spycraft and, and heroism and stuff on a big scale. And, uh, you know, this is just a really surprise candidate for someone like this, but... I'm going to give it to you right now uh, in this book, The Dutch Girl. Uh, what I 
garnered from it, you know, on what kind of person Audrey Hepburn actually was more than just her movie star persona. So stay tuned. I, I'm, I, I'm going to be playing a, a pre-recorded uh, segment I've done uh, for this for this occasion uh, that will really kind of make you look at Audrey in a, in a different way you never had mm-hmm. before. They always say, you know, like, you know, never meet your heroes, so to speak, right? But I mean, in this case here, we have someone, you know, part of an industry known for artifice and stuff like that, who deep down was actually like a wonderful human being and humanitarian. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's very rare, you know, in, in these days. So it is. Yeah. I know I'm looking uh, forward yeah. to this. Yeah, I'm looking no, forward to this. We know, we know you've put some work into this little pre-recorded bit. And I, I, I didn't know much about Audrey Hepburn, I must admit. No. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to this. But I, I, in terms of bond links, Josh, uh, she was great friends with Roger Moore, not just within the yes. UNICEF organization, but outside of that as well. They lived close together, and Moore always spoke very, very fondly of her. So, um, yeah. so many people spoke fondly of Roger Moore. It, it's not surprising, is it, that these types of people uh, he come at together? Her funeral. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. this this will be great. She died for us to very see. young, but I'll, yeah. I'll get to that. But she was cool, really huh? young when she died, like very sudden too. But uh, yeah, we'll get into that, as you said. So here we go. All right. If you gave it some thought, one of the last things you'd expect to hear on a James Bond podcast is, let's take a moment and talk about Audrey Hepburn. I can't recall under any circumstances whether Cubby or Harry ever considered Audrey to be a Bond girl, and if one is anyway familiar with the lady's filmography, one can understand why. She was the elegant, naive Aristo, the charming waif, the jaded free woman, the jilted wife. She was a feminist icon, a gamine fashionista, role model to millions of women, young and old. She was the mother of two, a humanitarian, and a survivor in more ways than one. I will tell you precisely why, aside from co-starring in Charade, why she deserves to be mentioned on this podcast. In fact, this extraordinary human being, and this is in no way hyperbole, should have her story exalted day in and day out. While we know her as Audrey Hepburn, she was born Audrey Kathleen Van Heemstra Rustin on May 4, 1929. Her mother, Ella, was Baroness Van Heemstra. She was of Frisian nobility, and her family held lands in the Netherlands and Belgium. Her father, Joseph Rustin, was British with a German mother who claimed descent from James Hepburn, Earl of Bothwell. That's the third husband of Mary, Queen of Scots, for the history buffs at home. Mom and Dad used the Hepburn Rustin in their social circles. Young Audrey would adopt it as her screen name years later, perhaps having gotten over the shame she felt for her parents. Why the shame? Well, they were fascists. Rustin and the Baroness had fallen into the retinue of Oswald Mosley, the rising leader of the British Fascist Party. Through this turbulent figure, Rustin and and the Baroness were swept under the tide of Adolf Hitler, now Chancellor and President, de facto dictator of Germany his Third Reich. When Audrey was but six years old, she stayed with her uncle Otto and his wife, along with her two half-brothers, Ian and Alexander, whilst her parents partied with Nazis. Her mother even wrote an article in a London newspaper that praised Adolf Hitler. 
But soon after, Joseph Rustin walked out on his family. There are many theories as to why, by this, but this would set a precedent in Audrey Hepburn's life regarding father figures. She would see her father soon again, however, when her father and mother arranged for her to attend a boarding school in Elm, Kent. There, the seven-year-old was abandoned by father and mother, though her father would check in when, she, when he could when he wasn't being hunted for being a Nazi spy. Audrey did the best she could, but she was unhappy. She made casual friends when she could, and she loved going on to the farms and playing with animals, especially dogs. Her mother would visit occasionally in the end, but she wasn't the nurturing type that someone like Audrey needed at that moment. Then the looming ominous crowd of German National Socialism ceased to be ominous. The Reichstag burned, the Nuremberg laws were passed, then came the Night of the Broken Glass. Even Ella, the Baroness, began to see that the anti-Semitism of the Nazis was something more than just surface level. Finally, in 38, Hitler annexed Austria and then marched into western Czechoslovakia. By 39, with the invasion of the West certain and that the British would be opposed to it, the Baroness worked to get Audrey out of England before the inevitable bombing began. Because if you think about it, Kent, the southeast of England, is the bombing run of the Luftwaffe during the Blitz. So in December 1939, after saying goodbye to her friends, Audrey was flown across the channel on a low-flying orange-colored passenger plane. She made it safely and was soon on a train to Arnhem, Holland, to live with her family. Her mother resolutely believed that Holland was the safest place for Audrey because according to The Dutch Girl by Robert Matson, the biography of Audrey Hepburn's early years, particularly in the Second World War, on which I derived a lot of this information from, as I have mentioned, uh, Hitler would never invade a peaceful country. <clears throat> May 10th, 1940. Germany invades the Netherlands. In five days, the government falls. Arthur Sessingquart is installed as Nazi governor and a reign of terror falls over the Dutch. It is during this time that Audrey, 11 years old, begins her ballet training under Winja Morova, a renowned ballerina instructor. This instruction will pull her through the Second World War, providing routine and sanity in the darkest of hours. Now that's just a stripped down summary of her life leading up to the start of the Second World War, which I have pulled from Robert Matson's book. There's a lot of detail about her interest in dance, her ambition to become a ballerina, but that could be attached to any autobiography of the actress. Though Matson does suss these details out as well. What I wish to talk about is Audrey, or Andranche, as they called her in the Dutch, uh, was that her work for the Dutch resistance, albeit she still continued her dance lessons, uh, which would come in handy for the cause. Her most prominent work began when she volunteered for Dr. Henrik Visser to Hoof, an Arnhem physician who, like many doctors at the local hospital in Arnhem, were members of the Dutch resistance. They kept Jews in their households, passed information to the greater networks that connected them across Holland, and seeped info to the Allies. Prior to Audrey's participation, and what could derive as being the catalyst for that involvement, was when Dutch saboteurs blew up a factory in Rotterdam. The Moffin, that is the police force of the Dutch Nazi Party, or Green Police, under the orders of Say Sinkort, who was under the orders of the SS head Heinrich Himmler, rounded up political prisoners, political dissidents, and shipped them off to abandoned seminaries across the country where they were well taken care of. But as soon as the Dutch resistance acted up, Sessingcourt, with his SD man Router and Frederick Christensen, the commander of the Army of Occupation in the Netherlands, ordered five of these individuals loaded up in trucks where they were taken deep into the forest, where they were ordered to dig their own graves and were then shot by a firing squad. This was a warning against Wilhelmina, the Dutch queen in exile, who was now in the United States pleading her case to Congress. 
She was the figurehead of the Dutch resistance in Holland, and it was she who kept her the legal radio network Radio Orange running in London, broadcasting support to her people and the rebels. One of the five men shot was Audrey's uncle Otto, Ernst Gelder van Limburg Sturm, as, as was her cousin Alexander. This act of carnage was meant to scare the Dutch to submission. Instead, it emboldened them further. Shortly after, Audrey would volunteer at the hospital with D Dr. Visser de Hooft, but even before then, the Van Heemstras, Baroness Ella was trying to make people forget her earlier sympathies, were getting involved. Matson mentions, In another interview, Audrey said, I did indeed give various underground concerts to raise money for the Dutch resistance movement. I danced at recitals, designing the dances myself. I had a friend who played the piano and my mother made the costumes. They were very amateurish attempts, but nevertheless, at the time, when there was little, when there was very little entertainment, it amused people and gave them an opportunity to get together and spend a pleasant afternoon listening to music and seeing my humble attempts. The recitals were given in houses with windows and doors closed, and, what, and no one knew they were going on. Afterwards, money was collected and given to the Dutch underground. Many of the events in which Audrey performed were staged in the home of homeopathic physician Dr. Jacobus de Wouters, who lived in a large villa at the corner of Ringeli and Boswig in Velp, not far from the home of the Van Heemstras. Wouters wasn't a member of the Velp's inner circle of physicians, but his willingness to host a series of black evenings proved his patriotism. Ella also hosted at least one illegal black evening at the Buchenhof, during which her daughter danced. The resistance events were high risk, with danger always present. Guards were posted outside to, lead us, to let us know where the Germans approached, said Audrey, who reported that best audience I ever had made not a single sound at the end of my performance. They had a reason to be cautious because lives depended upon it. Evil lurked in Velp. It had arrived with top Nazis like Cess Inquart and Rauter and a, ba and a basing of national SD operations inside Park Hotel. Audrey passed close by this evil in downtown Velp one day, and what she heard stayed with her for the remainder of her life. She was walking with her mother along Hoofstrat Pass, the Hotel Naif. At the intersection with Vigevelan, just four blocks from the Buchenhof, they waited for traffic to clear by the venerable Rotterdamsche Bank, a brick and stone building with a turret on the corner. Audrey looked up at the, at the bank, the city's most solid structure, which the Dutch security police had commandeered to hold political prisoners. She said she heard the most awful sounds coming out of this building. It was then explained to me by my mother that it was a prison and perhaps people were being tortured. Those are things you don't forget. But every, na but every life in Velp had been affected, if not of right, ruined or taken away by the German or Dutch Nazis. Village doctors enjoyed some degree of immunity, but not so the local religious leaders. Pastor J.R. Shars of the Catholic Church, one of the most charismatic men in Velp, had been arrested in 42 and was now in a concentration camp. One of their most important efforts arose out of the air, out of, out of the air war and the Allied bombing campaign against Germany that was bringing down so many heavy bombers and their crews over Holland. The Velpshi LO helped many American and British flyers to evade capture as they went on the lamb, quote-unquote, armed only with a Service 45 and an escape kit that contained a silk map of Europe, a translation card of key Dutch and German phrases, and some Dutch coins. Upon landing, if he didn't break a leg or a back, each individual airman was responsible for avoiding capture. The Dutch resistance did what it could to keep the airmen, most of them aged 19 or 20, hidden from the Germans. If all went well, they would be delivered into the Dutch resistance network and spirited south over the Freedom Trail through the Pyrenees Mountains and into northern Spain. In a 1951 interview with Sidney Fields of the New York Daily Mirror, Audrey tossed off the fact that her role with the resistance had included running around with food for the pilots. 
referencing the Allied airmen shot down over the Netherlands during the 44 bombing campaign and hidden by the resistance in and around the village before it moved south. Dr. Visser de Hoof sent her one point dur dur during the period to take a, pe a message and perhaps food to one of the downed flyers. Her qualifications were simple. She spoke English fluently, whereas other young people within easy reach in the village did not. Many versions of the story exist, a story that originated with Audrey herself when she told it to American writer Anita Luce. The most reasonable interpretation is that as a 15-year-old, still young enough to be deemed safe by the German Green Police, she sought out this flyer, likely a fighter pilot who had been shot down and now hid in the woodlands just north of Velp. He must have been quite close to the village because the Germans decreed that no civilians could trespass into the forests of the Velu, which, which lay just beyond Rosendahl. The reason? Dielen Air Base sprawled, sprawled across the edge of the Velu north of the Arnhem and Velp. For any Dutch civilian, venturing near this complex meant death so Audrey must have been closer to Velp when she made contact with the fugitives. By this point in the war, hundreds of Allied airmen had been shot down over the Netherlands, mostly from B-17 or B-24 heavy bombers on their way to or from Germany. Audrey, through her work for Dr. de Visser de Hooft, would have been at least vaguely aware of the activities of the local resistance to funnel those flyers south through local towns and cities to Belgium where they would be handed off to underground network. Her tasks here and now, completed in mere minutes, helped to keep that machinery running. So after delivering the message to the flyer successfully, go to this place, say these words and the people will help you, she saw a green police approaching. Another 15-year-old might have crumbled at this moment. Not the Dutch girl. Not the dancer with the iron will and self-discipline to fight to the top of the Arnhem Ballet. Audrey kept her wits and began picking wildflowers in the rough countryside when the Germans in the green uniforms reached her. She remained silent and sweetly presented her flowers to them. After the soldiers checked her Osway, that's her civilian papers, she was allowed to pass. Every loyal Dutch girl and boy did their little bit to help, said Audrey. Many were more courageous than I was. These dance lessons soon came to an end as the war reached Arnhem, as the Allied bombed it on a gloomy se September Sunday afternoon, two months after hope started to stir with the Allied invasion of Normandy in June 1944 because soon Operation Market Garden, Montgomery's great paratroop and armor enterprise with the promise of ending the war by Christmas was underway. Unfortunately, the operation failed. Thousands of British paratroopers were captured and the beleaguered Dutch found the last vestiges of hope slipping away. The Dutch resistance had ordered the railway workers to strike, so the only trains that entered Holland with provisions were from Germany, meant for German soldiers. And anything of value, food included, was shipped directly to Germany and then winter set in. All of Arnhem had evacuated to a Belp, uh, the village, as I mentioned before, this is the Van Heemstra, where the Van Heemstras kept their house, the Buchenhof. Audrey and her family, like many Dutch families across the country, were vi with very little heat and very little food, froze and starved, the winter of 44 to 45. It carried into 45, gloom was prevalent even with the starvation, as word came of Hitler's death offensive in the Ardennes, the Battle of the Bald, where the ground broken by the Allies since D-Day had halted to a chilly standstill. Now, this describes the height of the Dutch famine. Uh, and this is again Matson describing the physical deterioration that Audrey Hepburn underwent in this time. At the Buchenhof, Meje and Ella, Meje her aunt and Ella her mother, passed their rations on to the Baron because those advanced in age were the most vulnerable, and Audrey attempted to pass hers on to her mother and aunt. Once again, Audrey gave up the ballet classes that had meant so much to the children of Velp and to herself, this time because of weakness brought on by malnutrition. 
I was very sick but didn't realize it, said Audrey, who came to appreciate later how her mother must have worried. She often looked at me and said, you look so pale. And I thought she was just fussing, but now I understand how she must have felt. Her biographer, Barry Paris, said, she was also having problems with colitis and irregular periods, possibly endometriosis, common among women dancers and athletes with a little body fat, and her metabolism would be permanently affected. When Alex returned to the VELP to lend a hand in the desperate situation, this is Alex, her half-brother, Audrey described that she and her brother went into the fields to find a few turnips, endives, grass, and even tulips. Her diet was so limited to endive during these months that I swear I'd never eat it again as long as I lived. Tulip bulbs became food, and Audrey would mention eating them in descriptions of life at low ebb under Nazi rule during the hunger winter of 44 to 45. It sounds terrible, she said in a 92 interview. You don't just eat the bulb. Tulip bulbs actually make a fine flower that is rather luxurious and can be used for making cakes and cookies. The only problem being that remainder of the ingredients didn't exist or make to make either cookies or cakes. Audrey said that by now she suffered from acute anemia, respiratory problems, and edema, swelling of the limbs. I still have stretch marks on my ankles from where the skin was stretched by the edema. In situations of extreme hunger over a long period, the body lacks proteins and minerals needed to regulate the amount of water retained. Water begins to collect first as the wrists and ankles. The, fa the fact that this happened to Audrey confirms the seriousness of the food situation in Velp. We all had it, said Annemarth Visserdehuft of Hunger Edema. All the children, but older sister clan fared far worse by the end of the hunger winter, and her situation became life-threatening. So that just gives you an idea about how, how much of a miracle that the Dutch were waiting for after the failure of Market Garden and then, of course, the Dutch famine, as it, as it is now called historically, uh, was affecting them, and particularly Audrey herself. Um, but she was just one of, them, one of the thousands and thousands and thousands that were suffering um, in, in the Netherlands. But... The International Red Cross and the Swedes came through with great cargo ships that docked in the north that brought provisions and food. So Audrey and her family survived, but the war raged on. Velp was bombed day and night by the Allies. Friendly fire. V-1 rockets shot towards Antwerp. Some would break down over Arnhem and Velp and then descended, killing Germans and Dutch citizens indiscriminately. There was even a close call when the Germans, perhaps looking for seamstresses or cannon fodder for the Reich, corralled Audrey with other girls onto the back of a military transport truck. She managed to leap out at the first chance she got when the vehicle slowed down, however, but it was still a close call. This must have reminded her of an early experience in her life that Audrey herself has mentioned, where she saw Jews being lined up in place onto trains at the Arnhem train station. Audrey has started to recover her metabolism over time. She had turned 16 years old by this moment, her childhood a mere casualty in the atrocity that surrounded her. Liberation finally came when the Canadian Armoured Division rolled into Arnhem. Early in the morning, all of a sudden, it was total silence, said Audrey, who gave a little gasp at the memory. Everybody said, now what's happening? Because it was sort of frightening. You know, we had gotten used to the thumping of the shells. Audrey crept to the window with inky night opposite the pane and put her ear to the glass. I could hear the sound of shuffling feet. Very strange, because at such an early hour, no one ever went out into the streets. She could make out the sounds of what seemed to be a greater number of people moving outside, and she began to catch a whiff of something in the air. 
The very first thing I smelled, I didn't see because we were in our cellar, where we had been for weeks because at that point our area was being liberated practically house to house. What she smelled was the aroma of cigarette smoke. They were real cigarettes made of tobacco, no mistaking it. There hadn't been such an aroma enveloped for most of the war, only ersatz cigarettes made of oak and beech leaves that had been available. These smelled awful and did smokers next to no good at all. And now she smelled genuine tobacco. What happened next became one of her favorite stories to tell in interviews for the remainder of her life. The four Van Heemstras tiptoed up the steps from the cellar to the first floor of the Buchenhof, and there dared to poke their heads into the morning air. Instead of the jaunty Tommies she remembered from the battle for Arnhem, she ventured out to a horrifying moment facing soldiers pulling back bolts on Sten guns and ready for a fight. Their eyes glittering and their guns pointed straight at me, she said. She blurted out some words in elegant English, and the instant they heard me speak their own language, they let out a great yell. One of them bellowed, Not only have we liberated a town, we have liberated an English girl. For the first time in five years, the men with the guns weren't German. It was the moment the people of Velp had expected 211 agonizing days earlier on 17th of September, when British airborne parachutes had filled the air. Liberation, they had shouted expectantly on the bright autumn Sunday, only to have the dream shattered. This time the soldiers looked like Tommies and wore their uniforms, including some not in helmets but in those lovely red berets. Their shoulder patches did not show a pegasus in white on a red field. These patches showed a white polar bear. They were in fact Canadian 1st Army troops, and the vehicles passing slowly by on Rosendalen belonged to the 5th Canadian Armoured Division. Of course they have a polar bear. Just a day ago, German Tigers have been parked there. The guns, the tanks, the trucks, the jeeps, and the men came rolling into town, said Audrey. Cecil D. DeMille could not surpass the spectacle. The rest of the story is pretty well known. Audrey never became the ballerina she aspired to be. The war and the famine had robbed her of that dream, though she did pursue her dancing in London. Her mother wasn't very popular in Arnhem in the post-world. She ended up having to leave her country and live with Audrey as she pursued her acting career. Joseph Rustin, her father, served time in prison for his treason. Stessinkort, the Nazi governor, was tried, convicted, and hanged at Nuremberg. His SD second-in-command, Rauter, that monster, he was shot by firing squad. But the trauma of what they left on Holland remained. Audrey's first big break was the Broadway musical Gigi in 51. Her second big break was when she replaced Gene Simmons for the lead in William Wyler's Roman Holiday. It was a role that launched her into stardom. But even then, her humility and strength is on display. I recommend anyone to go on YouTube and look up her audition interview for Roman Holiday. The, interview, the interviewer gets pretty personal with the questions touching on her dancing for the resistance during the war. Audrey says, I did give performances to collect money for the underground, which always needed money. And then the interviewer says, but what about the Germans? What did they do about it? They didn't know about it, she answers with a mischievous smile. Hmm. Hepburn retired from acting in 1988. From then on, she continued her work with the UNICEF as a goodwill ambassador. She was the first public figure to enter Somalia in late 92. Even though it weakened her severely, her wartime maladies coming back to haunt her, she held press conferences across the world to make it known what was going on in the war-torn country. Ultimately, this would lead into the UN and the US Army interference in Mogadishu, events we well remember from our childhood. But time was up for Audrey Hepburn. She was diagnosed with abdominal cancer in December of 92, and by January 4th, she was gone. She was 63 years old. She left a legacy in her wake, one that many across the world are familiar with, and seriously, 
go watch Roman Holiday, Sabrina, Breakfast at Tiffany's, Charade, Wait Till Dark, Robin and Marion. They are classics. But there is another legacy that her own humility forced to keep private. But it's a story that needs to be told just as well as the others. Or maybe, in Audrey's point of view, she just did what she could. Good work, Josh. Man, that was um, that, that was some in, insightful stuff. I was really surprised to learn just how involved she was in the sort of market garden defense. Well, I say defense, but, you know, she was defending herself, right, during the bombing of Arnhem. And, yes. And that's some really fantastic, fascinating stuff in there. I mean, yeah, the well, story about the her, like, just like, you know, I just picture the German soldiers, you know, coming up to her, asking her what she's doing. Anyone would be like just like shivering in fear, right, and showing it on their faces that they just went and delivered messages to an allied pilot in the woods there. Yeah. But Audrey Hepburn just probably just did, you know, the Audrey Hepburn thing, and I was just picking flowers. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, that was it, cool, it, man. I'm it's glad amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. As someone so young at the time, uh, would a lot be of able people to, were like she. I mean, she really had guts. I mean, you know, you always think when you think of Audrey Hepburn, you just think of like a very sort of frail or or, or wafy um, uh, actress. You know, like an it girl. So you're thinking, oh, there's maybe. I mean, you know, it's one of those things. You're just the stereotype, pretty girl. You know, and then you realize, like, even before this, when she was a teenager during the war years, uh, and you always think like in resistance like what what do the, what do people do and obviously this affected people of all ages and and obviously when you're fighting for your country it people resistance people that are like 80 90 14 11 you do your part and it's it's amazing to see someone young and she and she definitely had the will and the way and it's it's amazing to know that she was able to survive especially with uh, you know the climate uh, of the what was going on in the it, yeah exactly just the severity of, of what was going on in in where she was living at the time when in Holland and the Netherlands and 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 how and how good she was at what she was doing and and we all know that if she was caught um, she would have been she would have been killed 100 percent just because you know. Um, Especially I being think, resistance or anything like that, she would have been she would have been killed for sure. So she up until after up until after I think her uncle was shot, her mother was still an active participant in the German community in in in, in uh, Arnhem at that time, mm-hmm. and that's when she severed ties with that community immediately mm-hmm. after that. Yeah. So I, I think her mother played a big part in keeping her safe and making sure she was just doing her dance lessons. Her mother is an interesting figure, man. Like I don't know what to think about her because. I, I don't think she she wasn't anti-Semitic or anything like that. Like it's shown like in a lot of interviews Audrey's done, which she when she did talk about it, it's shown in a lot of documentation about her. Despite the fact that she was pretty much ran over the you know the coals after the war was done, and that she had to get out of England, sorry, get out to uh, out of Holland before anything else could happen to her. Because I don't know if, if you guys knew this, but like Dutch women who, for example, stayed with Nazis during the time of the occupation. If you've seen the series Band of Brothers, there's a scene when they're going through Arnhem, uh, or they're going through one of the towns when they're heading towards Arnhem. You actually see, like, women being shaved in the streets, like, and, you know, because they're being shamed for, you know, sleeping with Nazis and stuff. And it's hard to say what would have happened to her. So, you know, her mother did a part to keep her alive, 
But I mean, at what cost, right? So it's, mm-hmm. it's quite a harrowing story in that fashion. Uh, uh, it was yeah. an excellent divergence to take because, like you say, we are interested in spycraft and, and promoting the story of intelligence when, when and if we can. And, and here's an opportunity for us looking at a, an actor within the three non-bonds fun miniseries to, uh, to to bring that out. So well done to you, buddy. Yeah, and, and it's funny how Audrey Hepburn, compared to all the other like leading male actors, you know, the, the guys that play these strong um, characters in Bond, she had more... Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. real life guts. and espionage. Uh, you know, well, next to Christopher uh, Lee, maybe not. Oh, oh okay, no, fine, but but I mean, I'm talking <laughs> about actual Bond actors and Ken and, and, Ken, Ken, Adam. and Ken Adam. But sorry, it's Jeff, funny I how Audrey. No, 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 you're right, but uh, but it's funny how Audrey Hepburn actually had you know more uh, more more of a resume than any of them put together. I know, right? You know, it's kind of funny, about- like how she was never considered for a Bond girl, but I guess maybe she wasn't interested. I don't know. Awesome. But don't you think that, like, because I I've seen, I've seen a couple of Hepburn films now since Charade, uh and reading The Dutch Girl and stuff, and I've noticed one thing is if you watch like Goldfinger again. Look at Tanya Mallet's Tilly Masterson. She's like a low rent hip Hepburn in that film. Like she even has the same like hairstyle and stuff like that at the time, like in Breakfast at Tiffany's. And then she also has like the black, like completely black jumpsuit thing that, she, you know, like it's very similar in style. I wonder if that was what they were going with their character. I, I don't I, know. Exactly. I never I never picked up on it until you mentioned it, but I think I, you yeah. are on it, man. I, I think you are onto something. Yeah, they, they're wanting that sort of finesse. Uh, in in that role particularly they don't want the bond girl to be that they want the bond girls uh kind of accomplice to be that you know yeah exactly mm-hmm. one more thing about uh this is what relates a little bit to you know our dear and departed double o uh, geo mm, double o granny her husband yeah her second husband jack adderley he was actually part of the canadian uh invasion of holland after, right. in january in awesome. february 44 and i gar- i think he was at arnhem he did so he, he might have been one of the, he might have been there when they gave audrey hepburn her first yeah. cigarette like when that's they pretty the cool. Canadian soldiers that's pretty I just, cool i just realized that now yeah that's yeah. very possible that w- that was an awesome feature josh why don't we just move on in now to uh, to talking about the the scene breakdown of charade we we agreed for this season that instead of doing pre-recorded plot summaries we would kind of talk the film through scene by scene or at least major scene by scene share our thoughts and tighten up on our money penny scoring at the end of it all so you've you've provided us josh with a great rundown of the film and i know our listeners are going to be able to take this uh, uh and digest this quite easily as well so if you're familiar with charade welcome aboard we hope you enjoy what's going to happen in the next hour or so and if you're not then pause here go watch it and come back in a bit but you've been warned All right, so Charade, 1963, directed by Stanley Donan, our scene breakdown. So, first sequence, cold open, a moving train, somewhere in Europe, a body is thrown, and soon the face of a dead man fills the frame. Cue Maurice Binder customs psychedelic opening credits with a jazzy Mancini riff. Syncopated, percussive. I love this. And the Maurice Binder titles are just so awesome. This this is really, really good stuff. Like, it really gets the film going. I loved 
The title sequence, just absolutely yeah, loved it. It's great. And if you it's think very guys, psychedelic before psychedelic. <laughs> psychedelic before psychedelic, but also Bondian before Bondian. Really? Because we've, we've got yeah. Dr. No, and Dr. No is there, and Binder's played with stuff, but we have not moved in and transitioned into that big formula yet. No, we haven't, but it's very close to it. And it's already kind of parodying at least Hitchcock, but also Bond in a yeah. little way, the yeah. movie as a whole. Mm-hmm. Now, talking about the cold open, the cold open to me suggests this is going to be a very different kind of movie yes. than what we get. Yeah. So was, already they're playing Hitchcock. with tones and genre. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So after that, we got uh, our first big scene: the Swiss ski lodge. Yeah, uh, I'm assuming it's I'm assuming it's in Switzerland. No, it's uh, France. Or it could be well, France. I, mean, like, I thought it was Switzerland got, too. So it's like in the Pyrenees, perhaps, or it's uh, Megevre. You've got you got France, you've got Switzerland, you got Italy. They're all so like there's there's a little French Alps. There's a little like 15 mile stretch where all three countries oh, come okay. together. Maybe not 15, but yeah, it's all the same area. Like I, I took a ski trip with the kids from school a couple, what, two, 2020, just before uh, COVID actually. Oh, really? Uh, the, fir- okay. the, first case, the first case of COVID in Europe, at least, was in Italy, right in the, in the lakes. And that was just across the Alps from where we were. Oh, geez. But that was really close to uh, Cormaillers, where we were in Aosta Valley in Italy. But where this film is set is um, is also very close you know it's so that, that area of the alps it, this isn't france because yeah. she then takes the ride the, 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 the taxi back to paris right oh oh yeah that that's true sense. yeah unless there that's was an, an airport scene that was taxi. cut but it makes sense that it's in france now so mm-hmm. thanks for clearing that scott yeah Michel. <laughs> uh, yeah, so he, yeah Michel. so here we meet uh regina lampert mm. uh her close friend sylvie uh, now side note i know they refer to like aunt uh Aunt Reggie when it comes to Jean-Louis, but I just think Sylvie was just a close friend that she worked with. Is that yes. what I'm getting? Yeah. That's, that's kind of how that's I read what, it. That's what that's I thought. How I read it. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I, I was thinking yeah. about that, but that that makes more sense to what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah, so we meet Regina Lampert, her close friend Sylvie, and the latter's, and the latter's water pistol-wielding Shurub, Jean-Louis. Mm-hmm. Uh, Reggie is talking of divorce with her husband, Charles, when yeah. the dapper older... Mr. Peter Joshua, very biblical name, mm. uh, shows up with Jean-Louis. Peter gets a water spray from the boy and meets cute with Reggie. All he gets is her name for now. I uh, This, a um, couple of things for me, at least, guys. You know, we got the water pistol at the beginning, and then you got it yeah. being uh, the gun that kind of creeps out, and then it's played at, oh, this is a gag. Loved okay, it. I get it. Loved it. But, Okay, we've also got a telegraphed really early on here. I find it a bit clunky, actually, like that line about, oh, I'm going to get a divorce from my husband. Um, Like, so that the relationship with Cary Grant can be shoehorned so quickly. It's like, let me tell you right away that it's forcing forcing the end of one relationship so that the other one can come quickly in and she can just become doe-eyed at Cary Grant. Like, I don't know. I just feel like this was really telegraphed. Because I just thought she was like one of those Mm. like entitled young, like just a young woman who's like, oh, I'm going to get divorced. Like she's very matter of fact about everything. Like she doesn't like the kid. She's like, Sylvie, you know, get rid of this kid. I don't want to get shot with a water pistol while while I'm making like a $100 breakfast on the the Alps, uh, you know, in the Alps. But um, I I mean, I thought it was funny. I just thought it was sort of like in your, I mean, you're right. I guess it is clunky, but I, I just thought it was very humorous and sort of just like yeah. tongue in cheek okay cool about, like she's so and and just because she's uh she's so honest to like a total stranger like she definitely didn't like her husband and she's not hiding it like it's like oh that's 
pretty yeah. good. I didn't fucking know her husband. Her anyway, I'm getting ahead what? of myself. But yeah. Well, that's no, another matter. Right. There's another good scene about that, too, which yeah. I was like, how can you not know anything? Like, what the hell is this? But anyways, whatever. Yeah. Just for clarification, though, I, I see definitely where Scott is coming from. Oh, yeah. Uh, because one thing we, I want to consider, though, is that the morality of the time as well is that they had to find a way for audiences to, ex- you know, accept the fact that the divorce was a right thing mm-hmm. to do mm-hmm. in this matter, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. it was oh, right good. to move on from her yeah. husband uh, mm-hmm. very quickly. So they had to assume that she was not having a happy relationship in the first place. Yes. Uh, but I also understand too. So it's a different, it's a different type of screenwriting. Uh, I think that uh, back right. then as opposed yep. to, you know, in but your, I, I do agree totally with you right. that to me, mm-hmm. it is, it does force the dynamic. Yeah, it's, sure. it's and very, knowing yeah, what Grant, what Grant wanted in the screenplay to make this relationship work for him as a him personally uh, so that okay. he could play it. Mm-hmm. To me, it seems like this was part of that's This was one of these uh, forced scenes at, 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 that was changed at the end so that Grant would play along with it. That's how I feel. And that's a good observation, Scott. Well, that makes sense. I, I, but I do, I do feel like what you're saying is right about the time. Um, I'll probably come to say something about this with the story scoring. So I won't go into it here too much, but I, I just felt that, like I, I do think what you're saying is right because today this film would never have the same female arc because a woman like let's face it right Audrey Hepburn's character in this film she doesn't know who her husband is she doesn't know anything about him today's filmmaking would allow a woman to go out and have a fling with a guy and she doesn't have to know him and that could be it but here she's got to be fucking married before the sex can come and so the, the patriarchy is really clear here that that Ooh, i think takes yeah. away that takes away the character's ability to have a lot of agency and a lot of depth and dynamics yes. so we'll, we'll get into that how later. hard hepburn tries to you know overcome that that you know what i mean so, but again, yeah, we'll get into that. Right. So back to Paris, Reggie is dropped off in a cab in front of her apartment building. Jean-Louis asks her to write back to him, indicating he wants a letter for the stamps. Chekhov's gun is locked and loaded here. Uh, Reggie enters his apartment to find his trip bare, and her maid is missing. She runs into Inspector Grand Pierre of the Paris police, and we cut to the morgue. Reggie is shown the, the body of her husband, Charles Lampere, whom she identifies, we jump to the interior of Grand Pierre's office where he interviews Reggie. She and we learn of the Latanza bag with the agenda passports, of which we confirm he is the man who fell from the train in the opening. And there is also a letter with three stamps unopened. Again, Chekhov's gun is locked and loaded. Reggie's later back at her apartment. She's having a smoke when Peter Joshua shows up. He read about Charles' death in the papers, he says, and he agrees to help her find an apartment. Cut to can I can I just can I just stop? That doesn't make sense to me. Let's just go back even another step, if it's okay. Like everything is gone in this apartment. Like fucking everything. Yeah, I was coat hangers. Now, yeah, yeah. And what? What did this happen? He sold it all. He auctioned it all. That they said in the movie that he 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 auctioned it all, right? But it was very like. How long did that take? Exactly. She's only away on a ski holiday for a wee while. And yeah. you, you guys know as well as I do that that the crap that you accumulate in it wouldn't be like in, in living, it wouldn't be worth auctioning the entire contents of a house. Like, what are you going to do with the sewing no. needles and the plunger? Like, who the fuck's going to buy someone's plunger? Like, it doesn't yeah, make any that, sense. That, to- that, that bothered me too. Like, there should have been but, something there. But yeah. it makes it makes for a good visual. I get that, sure. right? Like, I go into my apartment and there's nothing there. But like. I, I don't know, like fridge magnets, garbage twist ties. Like, <laughs> there's got to be, got to be something left. Yeah, there. you know, yeah. like, yeah. 
I don't know. I just, I then, just found that that was really weird. And she doesn't seem overly bothered either when she's talking to the cops, you know, in the next scene. That it, no. it's, well, is it meant to well, be a shock? Thing. It's like she's, well, it, it clearly, it should, well, she I think she's just out. saying that she was going to divorce him anyway. So, like, she's like, it sucks that he's dead, but it's like, uh, like, did you love him? She's like, I'm cold. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to start to eat. You know, that's right. where I was like, okay. <laughs> anyway, I, don't, I just found that kind of I funny. I just think like, she... Yeah, she has different coping mechanisms, that's for mm, sure. Sure does. She's a nervous eater, too, which is kind of funny. She is a nervous eater, yeah. That's very Hitchcockian as well, isn't it? Sticking the food in there at yeah. mealtimes. Yeah. Yeah, so then we get uh, Charles Lampert's funeral. This is a scene that's a mi- you know that's full of dark humor. Uh, we're introduced to the trio. First, the hyperallergic Leopold Gideon. The suave but snake-like ever. Texan Tex Pentalo. Uh, and the prickish trench-coated Herman Scobie. I say prickish because he literally pricks Charles' dead finger to see if he's still dead. Uh, each pays their respects to her husband in different ways. Reggie is given a summons. Disrespect, yeah. Uh, Reggie's given a summons letter from Hamilton Bartholomew, and who is an official from the U.S. Embassy. So that cuts to the U.S. Embassy. Great transition in that sequence. Uh, I was like in the movies where they show like the letter that they're given and that you see like the actual text of the letter. I just like that, you know, that deep dive into like props and into making props and stuff like that. And it carries, carries the story in that fashion. Uh, Did you guys think that, that uh, Reggie's reaction to Peter Joshua showing up at her apartment was like either a bit weird. Like she's not, yep. She's, she's just like, Oh, hello. Yes. It's you. Yeah. Random man. I met at the Alps that like, uh, yeah, no connection. Also, she make like, any connection. How does he, he just reads it in the paper and he's like, "Well, I'm just going to go and confront her and be like, yeah, I've read about your husband dying in the paper." I thought that was really weird, personally. But good, so as long as it's not just me. So then we have a scene at the U.S. Embassy. Uh, Reggie enters Bartholomew's seemingly empty office, but he calls her in. He eats his lunch while casually revealing that he's CIA mm-hmm. and that Charles Lampere is actually a criminal named Charles Voss who with the trio stole $250,000 from the U.S. government during World War II. Uh, She takes the sandwich he's offered her. Mm -hmm. Bartholomew also warns her that the trio probably killed him and they think she has the money. Yeah, I I really like this scene. I really like this scene. Great, one of my favorite scenes. I think it reminded uh, me of the Quiller because... Go ahead, Jeff. Sorry. Reminded Remind me of the Quiller scene because he was offering him food and eating while he's explaining to him that, like, you know, the operation. And he gets, you know, oh, so yes. it's like, oh, look, another person who's a spy offering German sausage to a person <laughs> while they're explaining the situation. I'm like, is this is this what happened? Yeah. This is the thing. <laughs> I, think no. the, I think the mundane situation... Uh, the mundane, like the very the mundanity of him just eating a sandwich, you know, kind of gives him a very kind of uh, blue collar worker, realistic feel to oh, the yeah. character. Yeah. But it also hints at how much actually like a sociopath he is as well, because he's just eating food and and he's playing with her, you know, in his own way to get what he wants. So I found that I found that uh, really good, and uh, the chemistry with Matthau and Hepburn in that scene was also really good too. Like they were bouncing off each other mm-hmm. very well. I actually like all their scenes together in the film as a whole, but this scene in particular. Do you have any other points on that scene, Scott? Well, you know, I did like the way the film was sort of, of this scene was kind of set and staged. And if you think back to the beginning when she enters the office, it's I don't know if it's Donan's direction, but 
you can tell that at first there's no secretary there. So you're kind of like, hmm. Yeah. And he calls out yeah. to her as a secretary. And then you can see he's kind of, or you can hear because he hasn't appeared yet. But you can hear that he's kind of uncomfortable and like not quite sure of when or how to hit the talk moment. And that yeah. that, that kind of delay makes me aware that maybe he's not he's not really fit for that environment, which of course at the end we find out that he's not. And I like that verisimilitude, which you don't necessarily capture until the end of the story, but we get that little character point, you know? So I thought it was really well, uh, really well Mm -hmm. carried on. Yeah. I thought it was nicely directed and very well acted. And um, although I've been disappointed by little marks so far in the film, the performance of uh, Matthau particularly, I think he's a standout so far for me. I really liked him. So following that, uh, we got Puppets in the Park. Uh, Peter and Reggie reconnect over Punch and Judy show. Yeah. Grand Pierre is skulking in the background. Mm-hmm. Uh, he seems to be enjoying the puppet show. Yeah. Um, yeah I love this, said, I yeah, love this scene. This is great. Yeah. I, gotta I, like the, yeah. I like the part and, where she's, uh, like, she's like, well, um, they're married. Uh, and he's like, oh, yeah, oh, I should I have been tell. able to see that. Or can't you tell that or something? Because <laughs> he's getting clobbered. That's good. Yeah. Josh, it also it also reminded me of the the puppet show that we saw um, on one of the seven yes. hills in Rome. I don't remember which in Rome. one, but yeah, I think it was the Janiculum. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. That was great fun. Yeah, yeah. We took a trip to Rome in two thousand and seven, wasn't it? And uh, on yeah. one of these hills, we get to the top, and obviously it's a garden space and whatnot. And you can drive, and it's a park and all that. But uh, there's just this lovely little uh, puppet puppet show going on. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, back in Roman times, it was like, especially during the Republic, it was like a big citadel that was there, like outside the city where the magistrates could go to to be protected if the city was being attacked. Um, So Peter then feels, you know, she needs a night out. So he takes her to the Black Sheep Club. Uh, And this where they become involved, uh, Peter and Reggie join in a very odd, join in on a very odd, comically sensual, awkward audience participation involving mm-hmm. oranges. Orange, you glad I brought uh, you to the club tonight? Really? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, classic dad joke. Match made in heaven. Oh yeah. yeah. And I think with the oranges, that would have Get some it? significance for Audrey Hepburn, I- given the Dutch resistance, right? Orangen. Oh, uh, yeah, there you go. But anyways, so while Peter negotiates some hilly terrain, uh, Leopold Gideon becomes Reggie's new orange partner, but she rebuffs him with a kick in the shin Mm. and escapes to a phone booth outside where she attempts to reach Bartholomew. Tex then bursts in and menaces her with with lit matches. He shuffles off and Peter arrives to find her in hysterics. Yeah, I... That scene was pretty, like, that was a great scene overall. Like, just Donan did, you know, Donan could handle a scene like that very well. The choreography of how that was put together. The humor of the situation was very timely then. I don't know how a scene like that would be pulled off today, though. Yeah, no, you're right. The timing of it was good. This is definitely Donan's wheelhouse, this type of direction, you know, with his experience in musicals and stuff. Like, very, very comfortable, very well done. And the camera work is really nice, too, as it moves, you know, around the the pairs and the couples. As as, as it follows. But you're right. It it would be difficult to stage today. It would be. And I like the transition then. We get the scene where she goes in the phone booth and Coburn is just so yeah, menacing as text and his creepy, you know, because she goes scene, from like man. the, she goes from the creepy guy, the really creepy Gideon guy. Right. And then she goes to the charming kind of suave looking text, but he has his, he, but he's, he's like a t- typical like Western villain in this sequence. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 
Like he's ready to go down at the OK Corral himself, right there in that, right there in that scene. Oh yeah, uh, he has no, just on he has no problems scaring the living crap out of her. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So then we get to Regina's apartment. Uh, Reggie and Peter bicker to her, uh, bicker all the way to her, her her new apartment door, the one that uh, Peter set up for her conveniently enough. Uh, Reggie enters the room after Peter heads downstairs and finds Scobie, who has a claw-like prosthesis that Teehee obviously plagiarized. Uh, tearing <laughs> yeah. I mean, through it, her it's, belongings. It's almost exact, isn't it? It, it, it the is. The apparatus. Yeah. It's almost exact. But it was Charles Lampert that was thrown from the train, not not uh, not Scobie, though. <laughs> yeah. True enough. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Uh, so he, yeah. So he's tearing through her belongings. He lunges at Reggie, and she runs out. Peter rushes in. Uh, we get through her point of view while her waiting. She enters the room. Peter's behind the bed. He's still. He's fine. Uh, Scobie's gone. He leaves her presence to check out the balcony for how long? I don't know. Uh, I wonder what she thinks. What what he's doing out there? I yeah, have no I idea. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Really. he then basically leaps frog from balcony to balcony until finally arriving at uh, at the room that uh, down the hall consisting of Gideon, Tex, and Scobie. Uh, we learn that he is with the trio and is working Reggie to find the missing two hundred fifty thousand dollars as well. Mm-hmm. And Scobie does not seem to trust Peter at this I, point. Yeah. Uh, Peter returns to Reggie's apartment. He keeps up the titular charade, and they have a tender moment. The moment's undercut when the phone rings in which Reggie answers. It's Scobie, and he tells her Peter is actually Carson Dial, one of the men who stole the money with the trio. Uh, she lies to Peter, uh, telling the inquiring Peter that Scobie was extorting her for the money. Peter has arranged to stay in a room adjacent to her at the hotel, as we mentioned. Uh, he sets up an early warning motion detector via some string, uh, very Bondian in how he did that. Yeah, with the, uh, yeah, like yeah, Sean that Connery you. and Dr. Like... No from Rush With Love kind yep. of Bondian. That's what I thought. Uh, he does this with string and he follows Reggie after she has called Bartholomew who has arranged a meeting he follows her but she's aware that he he is doing so and she loses him so we have Reggie getting some agency uh, unbeknownst to her that she really doesn't but anyway uh, we get the meeting with Bartholomew we she learns from Bartholomew the whole operation in 44 Nazi gold and everything uh, and Carson Dial is dead, was supposedly killed after the gold was stolen, ambushed by a German patrol, uh, which killed Dial, and Scobie gets away with only one right hand. Bartholomew recruits Reggie to spy on, on Peter. So that's uh, her mission, so to speak. Another good scene with Matthau and Hepburn. Did you find that this scene reminded you of Fleming's Octopussy short story? Just sort of the way the facts of the stolen gold, Nazi gold and stuff were sort of laid out there. It had me thinking a, about... A little bit. Uh, it did have me thinking about what's his name, uh, Ma- Major Boothroyd. No, not Major Boothroyd. No, no, not Major That's Boothroyd. Q. What's his name? Smythe. 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 Yes, Dexter Smythe. Smythe, wasn't it? Yeah, Dexter Smythe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Who gets a name drop as Octopussy's father in the yeah. movie Octopussy? Indeed. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that. Yeah, a great story. Yeah. Yeah. So what we get then is uh, Regina Lampert, a shadow recruit. Uh, Reggie shadows Peter from the apartment building to the American ran to an American ran hotel. Uh, when she overhears him referring to himself as Dial to the concierge, uh, she has him paged for a phone call. When he's in his booth with her nearby, she confronts him on the phone. Dial was his brother, and he thinks that the trio killed him for not going along with the gold theft. Uh, before he can complete her, her inquiries, he is uh, cut off, and she finds his booth empty. We then get the Scobie-Carson-Dial fight. 
So waiting for the building to close, the, the elevator man to go home, Scobie brings a uh, dial to the rooftop through by elevator, and Scobie's intimidation tactics slash murder method backfires and escalates into a rooftop fight. End result, uh, Carson Dial's brother gets clawed up, and Scobie is hanging from the rooftop with only his finger hooks. Nice. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I like that the, scene on the base. Some of that stuff, yeah. Yep, I, I thought that too. was a really well choreographed scene. Donan has a, has a really knack. Uh, I think Donan's work in musicals and the camera work that he does made some really good choreography and fight scenes. And that scene was very well done. Like there was some really good like Bond esque, early Bond esque fight elements to that. I also really like Mancini's score in that sequence. Like it just has a, it just has this great ambience during the whole thing, and it was really kind of chilling and suspenseful. So I really like that. Mm-hmm. I like the physicality of both Kennedy and Grant, who's fifty nine, like in that sequence as well. Like. It was pretty tense. I also like the subversion. Gosh, was he doubled at all? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. So, and I like how the fact that Scobie doesn't die in that sequence. Like in a modern action film, that would yeah, be like indeed, his death indeed. scene. I like how that you get that subversion where he's hanging from the edge and you see him again later, which is kind of funny. Uh, so he knows that we're not quite playing in the suspense thriller totally, you know, completely in, in that sense. So, and the sparks, too, aren't there? There's sparks when the claws yeah. going down the roof. I also noticed yeah, exactly. upon my second viewing that when uh, he he swings at him and he hits the the neon letter, the letter actually goes off. Like uh. The letter, like on the sign. I just, cool. I don't know. I cool. just noticed that. That's a good detail. Uh, That's cool. But yeah. uh, I think Josh is right about the choreography. It's a it's a good little action scene, and uh, it's it's well done. It, you know, and uh, I, I actually think it's a lot, it's better than some of the the later Bond. <laughs> action scenes if you know i think when you have like a camera that they know how to work it and they're familiar with the style and how to do the choreography right you know you you don't rely upon cgi to fix everything for you in post or you know, you know and i think that makes filmmakers today a bit lazy in those regards while here they're putting all their heart and soul and making sure that it works and that's why it does in my yeah. opinion well, that makes sense i, I fair point so, meet Alexander Dial. At the apartment, Reggie takes too much pleasure applying iodine to Brother Dial's wounds. Uh, he is Alexander Dial. Before they get reacquainted, there's a phone call. It's Tex, and he kidnaps Jean-Louis. Oh, no. Oh, no. He de- yeah, poor Jean-Louis. He demands her to, uh, to come to his room immediately. Uh, Reggie and Dial show up, and they all agree that since no one trusts anyone, they search each other's apartments to find the money. Uh, Reggie and Jean-Louis search Scobie's room, where they find a suitcase filled with... Scobie's spare claw. But Scobie is soon found drowned in Alex Dial's bathtub. Scobie's found, this time, by the maid. And he's drowned in his bed. Grand Pierre brings everyone to his office for a dressing down, unable to prove anything at the moment. So he orders them not to leave Paris on penalty of the guillotine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like this. I like this Very stuff. And it's kind of sitcom-y. Did you guys find like a kind of a... Yep. Uh, like a Faulty Towers sort of feel to all the stuff going on here with the rooms? A little, a little, little bit. bit. A, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Upstairs. I love the actor who does Grand Pierre throughout the movie is great. Like I like all of his scenes in the in the film. <laughs> uh he's just so frustrated, you know, with all these Americans and, and stuff like that. It's great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he would definitely be like someone that Bond would get along with, you know, and in, in, in if you if Bond was in Paris. Uh, uh probably you're right, Josh. He's probably a fellow he they go out and have some Cronenberg like a, or something together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I was gonna yeah. say yes. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Or maybe he knows Cluso. Who knows? Cluso's around somewhere probably Clouseau, too. I was thinking because I was thinking like he, he he's obviously not as idiotic. He's a competent Cluso. He's a competent Cluso. You could yeah exactly because he's just frustrated where he's like I I need to do my job and you guys are just not helping me. Like she knows nothing about her husband. That's right. And like yeah. you guys are like all your friends are dying in their pajamas. No one has any info. Like what the hell is this? Are yeah, you yeah. I call bullshit on hey, that. Come on. Come on, guys. Yeah. I have a deadline here. <laughs> Pun intended. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so Reggie enjoys an ice cream on the same boardwalk, followed by Alex's never nude shower. That's an Arrested Development that, reference for the folks back home. That. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he has jean shorts under that, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Tobias. Uh, after this sweet moment, the phone rings, and it's Bartholomew. He's doing sit-ups. Also, Carson Dial didn't have a brother, and a trust is shattered. Yeah, boom. And restored yet again, because he's actually Adam Canfield, and he's simply a thief, and he, that he tells her this in a matter-of-factly, but with empathy, during a tense, lovely dinner on the deck of a scene riverboat. Yep. yep. Yeah, this this was odd. How much of it was rear projection? Yeah, I wonder Some about that, was, too. But I, 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 in, uh, I watched uh, Funny Face, and there's a scene where they're at the exact spot, and Notre Dame is right behind at that exact spot. Like, that's where Notre Dame Cathedral is. But, but I also like how Notre Dame appears out of nowhere all of a sudden. And they even... And then they even like, oh, in, how in did that film. get there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was really funny. Because why funny. is she making a hunchback Notre Dame reference? Oh, because Notre Dame is go, right man. behind there. Yeah. That's kind of that was the screenplay having fun for sure. I see, I see Scott's point though about like it's a rear project because all of a sudden it's literally like the lights went out, like like in a room, like, yeah. like it can't yeah. be that dark. Yeah, I think it was a mixture of both. <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Maybe I don't like think it was. I mean, it didn't take sitting... me out of the scene or no, anything. No, it, it just no. it just kind of kind of struck me that mm, this is different cinematically. I think it's clear from the since the beginning of this movie that you know that. Reggie is not happy with her relationship at all. She wants to divorce. She wants to move on with, and find someone else. Yep. And all, and from the very beginning, she's like almost going after yeah. Cary Grant's character from oh, the yeah. very beginning of the movie. Yeah. And here shows it because he reveals himself as a thief and she's kind of taking yeah. non-plus like, okay. about it. But that's about it. You know what I mean? So well. she clearly believes in this guy. She desperately doesn't want him to be who, she, who everyone says that he is. She wants to keep believing him and yeah. no matter how many times that he lies to her. And Grant's acting at least shows that he's not happy about what he's doing about it, but he mm-hmm. has to do it for his job, right? Which is the big yeah. reveal in the end. And but so yeah. I, I, I have mixed feelings about this scene, you know, and what it's trying to do because at the same time, yeah. it's very it's very contrived uh, so far. But this whole narrative about him is all those different names. It definitely adds a bit of convolution that doesn't necessarily need to be there. But it also works for the film. So I'm kind of sort of like I don't I don't know like I'm really reticent about you know giving it full praise. But I do like the scene. Well, I think it's funny because. Even though she keeps finding out she really knows nothing about this guy, I feel like she still knows more about him than her husband. Yes, she definitely does. <laughs> yeah. She had no idea who her husband yeah. was. Yeah. Like, and that's the thing, Like, because I made the mistake of, so at the I beginning when I first cool. watched it that she was the sister of... Of of uh, of uh, that she was you know that Sylvie was her sister yeah but then we we, we know that Sylvie is like her work friend right wow. so in that case then like so I realize now okay so she's not French she's American and I mean Audrey Hepburn's played Americans in other films despite you know her very transatlantic accent so uh, I guess she's American I don't know <laughs> but. Doesn't matter. Not as American as yeah, Texas, for example. Her her no. her nationality is less important to me than her intelligence. 
Um, <laughs> and that's what takes me out of the scenes. Yeah. So. Is, is it intelligence or is it, is it her stubbornness to like believe in this guy or go after this guy, right? Well, that's what yeah. I mean. Like resourcefulness, yeah. if you want to use that expression. But I, I don't necessarily think that she demonstrates a lot of that. But no. we'll yeah. see. We'll see. Man. We'll see. Yeah. yeah. So, meanwhile, uh, Gideon gets a phone call. Uh, he knows who it is and heads... Sorry, later, I should say, not meanwhile, because this happens later. Uh, Gideon gets a phone call. He knows who it is, and he heads down in the elevator. It's the middle of the night, and the security man is fast asleep. He's unable to hear Gideon descending to the lobby. That is, until he hears the screaming. He calls the elevator back up, and Gideon is dead. He's been stabbed. Another man murdered in his, pa- in his pajamas. Grand Pierre ransacked Adam Canfield and Reggie who are wearing pajamas, hmm, uh, quite fantastically as well. Uh, Tex is in the wind. He calls Peter, Alex, Adam, and threatens him. It's clear to Adam that Tex killed Gideon. Tex is sure Reggie can find the money, and they search to love a Hansa bag and brainstorm where it might, might have gone. Uh, any, any comments on that part at all? Or Not really. Yeah. No, I mean, I, no. I, I, um, I like the lift in this apartment. <laughs> Or yeah. this hotel. I think it's quite Diamonds a, it's are nice forever thing. vibes. Yeah, exactly. Defin- that's definite that's diamonds that's are forever <laughs> vibes. But I like the way it moves. It it seems to move with a with a stealth. Obviously a stealth that, that doesn't notify the uh, the That's the just how elevators work in Paris. Come on. It's got some style to it. It's got <laughs> a got swagger. I'll be honest though, if I got on an elevator that had swagger, I'd probably get off and use the stairs. However, yeah. Yeah. this was a nice elevator. Yeah, I don't know. An, a, a, I, don't, I don't know. An elevator in Paris to me would break down in the middle. It'd be like life is shit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, that's a Robin Williams thing, anyways. Um, yes, yes, it is. So at her job at UNESCO, she's interrupted by Adam in her translation booth. Adam was able to determine there was agenda book book missing from the Lahanta bag. And after some necking, Reggie members remembers the agenda book. Uh, with Charles' appointment at the garden near the Champs-Élysées. Mm. So at the garden, they spot text by mm. the merry-go-round holding on to the agenda book. He heads to the market nearby and Adam pursues. Sylvie and Jean-Louis are attending the market as well. Jean-Louis has the stamps from Charles' letter to Reggie. Yeah, this is a Adam Hitchcockian follows- sort of uh, sort of section, isn't it? This is a uh, very this is kind this is Hitchcockian. Yeah. Just the, the setup and the sort of outdoor market and sort of what we're doing. Yeah. Where we are, because there's an outdoor market and to catch thief as well. Yeah, even the even the way it's shot, and even like, before would they, that, would they all kind of have those uh, those like the the realization of the stamps and just the way it was cut, like boo 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 boo. Mm. Yeah. Hi. Adam follows Tex to the market until Tex has a spaz over a stamp collector's booth and boots it. Adam <laughs> pursues again all the way back to the apartment. Uh, Tex chides Adam for killing all three men for stamps, believing that Reggie had them all was 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 ringing them on all along, and she was playing him. Sorry, believing that Reggie was playing him all along, and that she had the stamps. Reggie and Sylvie have the same revelation and chase after Jean Louis. But it's too late. Uh, she's, he's sold the stamps for a lot, lot of more stamps, and the collector has closed his stand. Luckily, the collector is soon found at his residence, and he reveals the true value of the three rare stamps. They total $250,000. Huh. So the collector returns the stamps as holding them was just once was good enough for him. I gotta say, Stamp Collector is like one of my favorite characters in this movie. I love the Stamp Collector. He's a very nice person. He literally yeah, well, had he the most nice expensive person. stamps in the world. Yeah. He's like, I just need them for a couple of minutes. Are you kidding me? Mm. <laughs> but that's nice. I, I, I you. Yeah, I mean, he, he he is 
a man of virtue and he's a man of kind of moral integrity, but he's also not going to be very good at his job if he doesn't try to retain these stamps in some way. I mean, he, he wants yeah. to make money off of them. Like, I, I like his morals, you know, he hands them back kindly. He's very gracious for having had a look at them and all of that. But I mean, couldn't there just, don't you think there could have worked out to be a bit of tension here with maybe him hanging on to yeah. him in some way? Yeah, and I thought I was just, so, I was just bit so more surprised. Suspended. Yeah, it maybe, just gave but him if over. He, but, but if he knew, but if he hmm. knew, for example, that uh, that's what the, what the stamps were worth, then he was probably aware, you know, that these were probably stolen. And why would the child have this in, have this on him in the first place? Why are these being sold? So he knows that, you know, there could be some legal tie-ups on here that he doesn't want to get involved in. And I understand that. And maybe he has other, re- you know, so... Okay. I, I, I don't know. I, I, okay. I, I found it believable. I found it believable, you know. And, and, and the, the fact man, that, you know, yeah. they, they reinforced okay. the saying, I just got to hold them at least once. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, you know, that was, I don't know. I, I just found that touching in, in, a, in a kind of way. But right. that, you, th- you have a me. better view of humanity than I do, clearly. Because I'm thinking if these came across a collector's desk, an antiquarian's desk, he's not going to think, oh, not. These, these should probably not be here because they are of too great value for a kid to have had in his possession. So I'm going to need to just wait until someone comes and asks for them. Whereas, you know, I would probably, I don't know, this is just me. I'm speaking as a father of two in a, you know, I I would sell them and I I would want rid of them very quickly and get some money. He clearly wasn't, he clearly wasn't uh, married though, based on what I'm seeing there. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So Reggie returns to the apartment building and finds text tied to the radiator. Uh, he's suffocated to death with a plastic bag. He scrawled Ooh, the word yeah. dial in the dust on the floor with his death throes. Uh, she calls Bartholomew in a panic, who asks her to meet him at the colonnade at the Palais Royal. Uh, she heads out and is pursued by Adam. We get a cat and mouse chase through Paris, taxi route, and subway stations, subway cars, and subway stations yet again. Reggie does her best to elude Adam Canfield. She reaches the station but finds herself cornered. She reaches a phone booth for a brief respite and calls the U.S. Embassy. She gets the operator inspected and tells her to get word to Bartholomew that she is trapped at the metro station. She hangs up when Adam approaches nearby, Mm -hmm. and she gets an opening and makes a run for it. Meanwhile, the operator calls Bartholomew, but it's not the Bartholomew that we're familiar with. Mm-hmm. Adam spots Reggie as she desperately makes her way to the colonnade, and Adam reveals that the faux Bartholomew is actually Carson Dial. Adam begs Reggie to trust him, and she turns towards him, triggering Dial to reveal his true nature. There's a shootout at the colonnade. Reggie runs for it, and Dial pursues her into a nearby opera house. As she hides in a small recess on the stage, unaware that she is being baited for Adam, who is many feet beneath the stage, whilst Carson Dial is making his way slowly to where she is hiding. Having access to the trap door switches on the stage above, Adam times it just close enough to determine where Dial is positioned and pulls the switch. Dial falls to his death, presumably, and not even chagrined, Reggie and Adam bicker in the cab whilst he gives her a foot massage. Yeah. Um, uh, I think not even not even being chagrined is a theme throughout this movie. <laughs> I, th- yeah. I think so. Can I, I just bring you back right. a, a wee bit, Josh? Um, mm-hmm. Just to Texas death. I'm just, I don't know if you yeah. want... like. I feel that, like that's quite his, an image. That's like a real striking yeah, oh, image. It's actually you know? pretty yeah. freaky. Also, his it was scary. Like that was intense. Like all of a sudden, the stakes are just rose. And I think that reverts well. And then you get that whole sequence in the subway station. So we're getting real stakes here at this particular moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I like I like the settings and the atmosphere here. A really good use of space and filming is just kind of a simple mm-hmm. note that I made when I was watching it because I'm I'm engaged in this stuff. Like this this is really good yeah. sort of tense. 
uh, thriller esque stuff. Um, Jeff, what did yeah. you think of this stuff? Oh, I liked it a lot. Um, I thought it was quite good. It, it did. This did feel. This part did feel like kind of you know like a spy film. Like even like yeah. Hitchcock, the way it was it was edited and and uh, the urgency, um, the 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 intensity and, and you know uh, it it was definitely uh, you could definitely feel it as a viewer and I think it 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 did a good job and again with when we we're seeing sort of that that really actually quite disturbing uh, scene with Tex with his head in the bag and his eyes you know like you know just with the shock of him you know his last breath um, you transfer that to uh, you know, uh, Reggie's like, uh, you know, running and just sort of understanding like I'm next or what could happen to me. Like it, it's a really good sort of precursor to that scene. Uh, and, uh, and also and you believe her fear you when, believe when, 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 uh, when, uh, when, when Adam shows up, right? Yeah. Exactly. Because he's admitted earlier that he's a thief. He's a thief. And he's been lying to her before. So this is so the this moment, only I think, makes when sense. she I mean, it's... actually finally realizes, oh, my God, this yeah. guy, I it's... fell for this guy, and I kept believing him. But now, yeah. you know, like, maybe it's... I was wrong about him. And that's where the, the, te- the intensity picks up. It's not out of the realm of possibility. Like, what the hell? Yeah. Right? Like, so it finally, it's, like, it's finally getting to go. her now. Yeah. Especially now with the reality of the stamps and everything, right? And how he was always trying to be around and trying to find figure it out. So Because and... he didn't himself know. And he was just waiting to, for the moment to find it and now that he knows about it Tex is dead all of a sudden and and everything has changed right so uh, yeah and I mean the other thing is like he's chasing after and they're so far away that he can't actually be like hey let's listen like you know like let's talk yeah. about this you know and so all she sees is him running after her and also he's got urgency in the the body language of someone running and chasing and it looks like he looks like he's you know going to do you know mm-hmm. And we don't get any sympathetic uh, close-ups of no. like, Cary Grant yeah, exactly. in, this, in, in this sequence at all. Like and it's, it's played very straight by Grant as if he could exactly. be pursuing her in a predatory like, fashion. That's you know? exactly, and so that, and therefore, that's why when you see her reaction when he sees her through the door in the subway, that she's like seriously scared. He's just like I, you know, he's like frustrated because he's like you could see the frustration on, on his face, which then she would misread as being like. You know, I'm coming to get you. But he's and then just, we get that hit. You know, yeah. when uh, the, the reveal of uh, Hamilton Bartholomew happens, when when we meet the real Hamilton Bartholomew, and then that kind of like upends everything, right? Yep. And then we get the tenseness of that of that uh, face off in the Colonnade. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. So last bit, Josh. So Adam escorts Reggie to the U.S. Embassy, where she is to return the stamps to the U.S. Treasury official. When she enters uh, the office, uh, waiting for her is Adam Canfield. Only he's not Adam Canfield. He is Brian Crookshank, U.S. <laughs> Treasury agent. And there is and there is a Mrs. Crookshank, um, just to go back to every time that, uh, you know, he always yeah. says, so is there a Mrs. Uh, Canfield? Is there a Mrs. Dial? You know, and he goes, no, we're divorced. And he goes, well, this time Mrs. Crookshank is there, but it's his mother instead. Uh, so he suavely drops in a marriage proposal. But first, the stamps. Mm-hmm. And the stamps and yeah. and uh, Fini. No closure. No closure over her husband's estate or the entitlement no. that she may own to anything at all, but or, or the abandonment for that matter. But I suppose she's getting married, right? That's all that yeah. matters to a woman. Oh, yeah. she's like, oh, did you say marriage license? Yeah, you got you you got Cary Grant. So that ultimately, who cares? It's better than any sort of matrimonial equality. 
Um, yeah. Can I ask though, just before we move into our money pennies, Jeff, you got a bit of info on the stamps? Uh, yeah, like a little bit. So what's interesting is the the stamps in the film were based on real stamps. Um, and actually, the the Swedish one is considered like probably the rarest stamp of all time because it was technically a one of, and it was cool. a mistake. Um, well, it wasn't meant to be. Yeah, it, it, it was a coloring issue, and uh, I think it was supposed to be like blue green, and then there was an issue, and then it ended up being like yellowish orange, and there was only and the thing is, it's literally a one of like there's literally one. Uh, and right now it's saying the estimated value. Now this was in 2010 is like uh, two million dollars. Wow! And um, apparently the stamp has been acquired by a Swedish nobleman, uh, Count Gustav Douglas, in 2013. But it's funny because apparently the um, the the blue Romanian one, which they said was the most expensive, was actually in reality the least expensive. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. But uh, they did a really good job of making them look like the real ones, but they, um, oh, the stamps were worth quite significantly more than what they are in the film now, obviously with um, inflation and that kind of thing. But uh, <laughs> if you had those stamps and you sold them to, you know, if you went to Christie's or wherever, um, what's the one in... Uh, they used in uh, Octopussy. What, what's why can't I think of the, the auction the house auction. Sotheby's? Sotheby's, yeah, man. Yeah, you'd be uh, property you'd be, over uh, there. Yeah, <laughs> you would be uh, flush with funds. Let's put it that way. Mm. Um, so, 1984, the Yellowstone made headlines. It was sold for 977 thousandths with. Swiss francs. It was resold uh, in 1990 for over a million, and then 96 it was sold for 2.8 million Swiss francs. But again, that's 25 years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. And then it was uh, auctioned in uh, May 2010 uh, to this David Feldman in Geneva, and then for at least 2.3 million, uh, it set a record at that time. Uh, they said in 1996. So it's still um, it's still with this uh, Count Gustav Douglas, apparently. Cool. But, uh, and it literally is like the most. Uh, it, it's, from what I can see here, it is the most uh, sort of lucrative and expensive stamp because it is literally a one-off because it was a mistake. Now there is supposed to be ten, but no one's ever found any more than one, which makes it more expensive, I guess. Well, there you go. There's supposed to be ten, but no one's ever found more than one. Yeah. So, and and again, the number of in existence that people have found is one, and it's not even oh. supposed to be yellow. It All was right. supposed to be like blue green, almost the color of the Hawaiian one in, in cool. the that they showed there. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. It's yellow because of a color error. So lots of little things that make this one basically like uh, a you know a stamp collector's dream. <laughs> Well, there you go. There's a challenge for all, all of you budding philatelists out there. Uh, I like stamps. Philatelist? That's not right, is it? Uh, That's I, not can, I can never say it. That's why I'm just like Phil- stamp collector, because I really just... Philatelist. Tumbling, tumbling philatelist? I think it's a light. I don't know. I'm probably butchering that. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Yes, a challenge for those of you who like to... In- like to uh, Collect stamps. Collect stamps. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. 
Cool, man. Cool. Yeah. Right, guys. Let's uh, let's let's motor on to our muddy yeah. pennies on charade. Mm-hmm. I'm very curious to hear what you thought of this. So, mm-hmm. uh, Josh, you are leading this yeah, conversation. Sure. So, h- how do you want us to do this? Do you want us to go all at once, or one at a time, or category by category? Direct us. Yeah, we'll go category by category. Give our own scores on each. I think that's probably the best way to do it. That's what we usually do. We'll just do that then. We'll do the usual thing. All right. Uh, I just wanted to say as a preface to the Money Pennies that the hybrid of genres used in this film uh, give it a, give this film a unique feel to it, uh, and 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 it makes it an interesting you know movie because of that. I also feel though that the uh, the jumps and the shifts in tone th- of these genres throughout the film also to me creates. Uh, some weaknesses to the film as a whole. So I just wanted to preface that when going into uh, my scoring and maybe even your guy's scoring is based on, on, on that premise. I'm not sure. Yeah, I will. Um, I'll retweet that premise. Oh. Very good. Very excellent. Excellent. I love it. Uh, I really fought myself over this, over this, the story. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, so we're doing our money pennies, uh, which is when we're, which is each a rating out of five, uh, five for story, five for acting, and five for atmosphere. So we're five? going to cover all those categories. Uh, is it a ten? Ten. It's oh five. my goodness! I, it's five I, I was thinking our... of lighting the pipes. Our, our other podcast. I'm so lighting sorry. the pipes. At, yeah. Uh, Jube. <laughs> yeah. This okay. was actually a choreographed conversation. These guys are literally right. just tooting their own horns or pipes. Stanley Donen directed this with with great choreography, in my mm-hmm. opinion. If you like the number five, get yourself over to Lighting the Pipes for a five-point scoring system. This episode is brought to you by the episode <laughs> Unintentional five, the letter right. C yeah. for Sherrod. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really debate upon what I would give the story in this film because I really like – there's parts of the screenplay that I really love. I love how it worked in the film in terms of the dialogue, uh, in terms of the characters. Like I really like the screenplay in that fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in certain genres, the, sc- the screenplay was really strong, but then in other, but then it didn't mesh with the other genres that they were playing with as well. So while I overall, while I like the story, the concept of the story overall, uh, like I find the title of the film, it connotes complexity in the narrative. Uh, it's very important in a narrative that the characters and their actions drive the plot. Now we get tonal shifts from comedy to thriller to romance. Uh, I find, as I mentioned, it robs tense moments uh, and makes them like less urgent sometimes. But and while that while that's jarring, um, it does create an anxiety as well. Uh, so I think Donin does jump from you know tone to tone with the plum. But I find that sometimes it, it caught there's the, the casualties can be like the writing of the characters and how they act in different situations and how like. For example, like our Reggie seems unaffected by the death of her husband to an extent where she's kind of just like, you know, chagrined about it, I guess you could say. But at the same time, like she also kind of moves on very quickly. She's clearly in love with another man now very quickly. Or wants to. I mean, (laughs) in a comic, in a comedic sense, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. In a thriller urgent sense where you want to have more reality, more grounded, grounded realism into it. It's a little off putting. So. It's these genre shifts to me that really affect how the story is played out. So I went with 
because yeah, I really struggled on rating the story because I really liked the movie overall, and the story was a real haphazard for me. I almost felt like giving like you know like a rating and story for each of the three types of genres in the in the movie. <laughs> but I'm going yeah. with seven and a half, okay, and based on certain flaws and based on just like what I feel. Uh, it might be generous to some, I don't know, but I think seven and a half is really fair for the movie overall and what it was trying to accomplish and what it didn't accomplish, I guess okay. you could say. So there we go. That's seven and a half for story. What about you, Jeff? Uh, so I'll be honest with you. I'm kind of a devil's advocate because I liked how it was kind of like uh, like a hodgepodge of genres, and that's why I actually really enjoyed this and I found it really refreshing and I was it really sort of engaged me just being like what's going on here like it's kind of funny and, and mm-hmm. which I also understand and uh, you know you being uh, you know like a, a film aficionado and and these kind of things would probably drive you nuts and it did kind of bother me too but it didn't take me out as a viewer mm. and, and that's and so, important and again but I'm just but that, I mean that's this is just me I can absolutely see where you're coming from but i i kind of liked it to to a point and again uh, i have not seen in fact i think this might be my first audrey hepburn film and i really enjoyed her and right off the bat i thought i was like to be honest and maybe this is the wrong way of describing it but just the way the the now this isn't necessarily i guess this is story but the way it was written it almost reminded me of the gilmore girls it was just so quick and witty Hmm. Uh, and and what what I mean by that is I don't Hoxian, know Hoxian people... dialogue, which yeah. the creator of the Grumbo is... Girls admitted to, like she loved that screwball yeah, romantic and like comedy screwball dialogue kind of stuff, like like yes. the other Hepburn and Grant, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, with um, yeah. with bringing a baby, that kind of stuff, right? His girl uh, Friday, his Russell, girl Russell. Friday, yeah, exactly. Sorry, um, and so I I really enjoyed it, and I I did kind of like sort of again sort of that off put like what's going on here? How is she this? Like nonchalant about telling, like I'm gonna leave my husband, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff, and uh, and she doesn't really care about her husband. She doesn't know anything about her husband. Like who? Like what normal person would be, you know, being interviewed by the police in a foreign country and l- literally eating like a bag of corn nuts or whatever the hell it was, and just being like, I don't know anything about my husband, like, and not worrying that that makes Maybe her look gum. like Maybe it was gum. I don't know, um, but I just. I just thought it was funny where, like, she literally is like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And the guy's like, are you are you kidding me? Like, what the hell? And so, but but you're right how it does, it does leapfrog genres. But I liked that because I, I was like, wow, what is this? Like, what is this film? This is crazy. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it goes right from the beginning where you're like, this is like a Hitchcock film. Because one, it's got a train. There's someone that, like, someone's murder falls off it. The yeah. music. And then you get these crazy titles. Like, what am I in for? And then you're like, oh, my God. There's, like, a Luger with a with a really nice leather glove. Oh, it's an eight-year-old shooting his mom in the face in the Alps. The like, subversion what is, is going really on fun. here? Yeah. And mm-hmm. just right off the bat, like, funny stuff. Like, oh, where is he? He's like, oh, he was throwing snowballs at Baron Rothschild. Like, that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, like I just I love that. And then again, with the changing of the the genres, and just to go on that, I I liked it. Anyways, but I could see where you're coming from and how it would bother you, and how again, it it, it poss- like it does kind of affect how you would rate this. I I thought with the story, I actually gave it I gave it a pretty pretty high. I gave it eight and a half. 
uh, just to uh, finally get to my point, like the fun factor of this film is like off the charts for me. Like I just mm-hmm. really oh, it is it. it is a fun. So movie, maybe I'm just it, it is a fun. Movie. Maybe it's just because the fun factor is, is sort of uh, is making me sort of bleed that into all of my ratings in the money pennies, which is fine. That's my choice. That's absolutely. But, yeah. um, there's a meta. Fa- there's a meta factor too, Jeff. Mm-hmm. I think like. The idea, like, you know, I think in a way, like, if I give props to the screenplay on, uh, mm-hmm. in this fashion is that uh, it's clear that Audrey Hepburn is kind of playing, like, a parody version Ye- of her of herself, in a way. Yeah, yeah. And the screenplay kind of, th- kind of does that, right? Like, kind of makes her, like, this fashionista airhead that people think that she might... Yeah. Well, she, didn't, she never plays airheads, I should say. She was more no. of, like, a, a woman child most of the time, a woman child fashionista. That's what she was known for, you know, up until this point. Yeah, and, and I mean, she was kind of whining in different things, like uh, entitled, you know, kind of spoiled yeah. rich woman, right? Ooh. Who who doesn't know? Oh my God, my husband's dead! Oh my goodness! And oh, aren't you handsome? Oh, yeah, hi there! Exactly, exactly. Oh, he's dead. I'm okay, sorry. Well, it's like, I better move well, on. Well, yeah, it's now. Like, like, oh, I'm sorry. There's a dark like, humor. <laughs> there's a dark comedy yeah. kind of feel to 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 the um, to the proceedings, you know. And I think that was the intention there, but. Again, the grounded realism of stuff that happens in the movie, like the chase sequences and just like, you know, the the, mur- the murders in this stuff, like kind of jump back and forth. So you get an emotional disconnect. And that to me is kind of like that prevents, yeah, just prevents I, my investment just a little bit that I just can't praise the screenplay a lot higher than I want to. So that's no, no, why it's like, true. I agree with yeah. you. And that's why, and for example, and, and a lot of times I probably would rate things lower because if you look at a film where if it can't narrow down or nail down a genre, you're like, then maybe it's failed because you're like, you don't know what you're doing. In my opinion, in this film, though, I I enjoyed that. I Again, on a personal level, but this is how I'm, how I'm, you know, how I'm what rating you, Scott? it. So. Yeah. Anyways, my my uh, just to go over that again, I'm I'm giving it eight and a half. There you go. Sorry. No, cool man. Like it's you make a good argument for the fun factor in a film, and I I agree. This movie's a lot of fun. What for whatever else it is, it is a lot of fun, and the change in tones is responsible for that fun and the quirkiness and the zaniness. Um, but it it does come down to whether or not you can suspend your disbelief enough to allow for the convenience of plot to get story and relationship where they need to be. And for me, I, I just couldn't. Um, I, I couldn't do that. I didn't fail this, by the way. I, I gave it a six. And I gave it a six, which I know is, is still a considerably lower mark. Um, mm-hmm. But I have a real, real problem with the tone surrounding and the writing surrounding Regina's character. Even in a screwball romantic comedy type thing, I don't it understand a- why she's written as so gormless uh, yeah. about marriage so gormless about her relationships and so so yeah. doe-eyed this is a good actor audrey hepburn is a good established actor yeah and why why donan wants to direct her as like a simpleton around this handsome man this sort of because she's not gullible she's beyond gullible in my no. eyes she's she's just pretty stupid at, at times but then at other times you like you see the way that she hides out and, and particularly like when she knows he's going to tail her the way she drops off and kind yeah. of has that thing with the French dude at the cafe. Like, this is really good stuff. She's clever yeah. enough yeah. to do that. But then she's like, hmm, you've lied to me four times. Okay, I still love you. Like, fucking strange, yeah, man. Like, exactly. what? I, I just feel it's true. the, in, the it's inconsistencies true. for me did take me out of it. But, you know, yeah. I, I cannot at all disagree with what you guys are saying. With with Sometimes that mix-up of tone is really kind of entertaining and, and it magnetizes you to, to want to see what, what they're going to do next. And 
you know, it's like you're watching an art piece more than like a, a, a like, like yeah. compare that to a Hitchcock. Yeah. People say, you know, this is like a Hitchcock film he never directed. I don't think it's really. A, I think it might have elements of Hitchcock inspiration, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but yes. it's not a Hitchcock film. No. The character interaction no. and the development and and even the filming is totally different. The editing is, yes. is totally different yep. from a Hitchcock film. As I said, I watched uh, Cary Grant and Grace Kelly going at each other mm. in uh, to, ca- to Catch a Thief, and there was nothing of that in this movie whatsoever between him and Audrey Hepburn. Audrey Hepburn was great in her scenes on 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 her own. Yes. But but uh with Grant though, yeah, her character just kind of like loses brain cells. Mm-hmm. But again, it's what Grant wanted. He says, "I want this I want you to write Audrey Hepburn's character to go after me completely. I mm-hmm. I want to be basically a reluctant husband to her. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like that's basically <laughs> yeah, what I don't want to be a sex predator. His character. I don't want to be a sex predator. It, basically, and, yes. And I, exactly. And I appreciate that and I understand that. And I also understand as I said guys the, the context of uh, of this. Like I feel as though we are denied here a more progressive female character because we're still writing for females at a time when they can't go out and have sexual dalliances with the freedom that men could enjoy because there's no way she would have married her husband. She knows nothing about him. Maybe he was a handsome guy. Maybe he was a spy, an agent, and she was like swept up in him and that's it. Today's world, she could have a, a fling with him, maybe a little ro- romance for a couple of weeks, but she wouldn't have to fucking marry him to have sex. Marry him, yeah. Exactly. No. In, in this movie, she has to marry him to have that that physical connection, which she so clearly yeah. wants with Cary Grant, and that has to be marriage before sex as well. So yeah. This again, Josh said it. Josh said it at again. the outset yeah. that this is a product of its time, and I'm not going to yep. bash it too much for that, but. It is a movie that puts you face to face with the patriarchy and the limitations, yes. the limitations of that patriarchy. So yes. for me, I, I got to stick with the yeah. six because the inconsistencies in her character also make me question Cary Grant's character. Like, why would he ultimately want to be with someone who is so gormless and, and so vapid? Like, I, I don't get it. But at the same time, I do get it. So I went six. Uh, Josh, acting. Back to you. Acting. All right, so this to me was probably the highest mark of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite the failings of the characters the screenplay did because of the inconsistencies in tone and the and the kind of like the character inconsistencies that were resulting because of the genre skipping, um, as Scott's been getting into, um, I found that the acting, regardless in, every, in the scenes, was pretty solid all the way out throughout the movie. I mean, there, I didn't give it full marks for acting, you know, like, I feel my mark of eight and a half is justified. I think uh, Grant was suave all the way through. Although to me, I think he might have been a little weaker than what I've seen him in other roles. uh, Because I found that he was kind of like on Cary Grant autopilot. But he was still charming. Uh, he, he still had good physicality in his role, so he oh, was yeah. good. Oh I, yeah, I, 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 I enjoy I enjoy Cary Grant being Cary Grant in the movie. That scene, yeah. that scene in the shower was not Cary Grant autopilot. That was something fun, something novel. I enjoyed yeah. that. Oh really? That, yeah, I, that was oh, a great yeah. scene. Unfortunately, he just put on a bit of a lisp in that scene, so I think he was wow. trying to be a little effeminate uh, because he was talking about fashion, yeah. right? Yeah, but I, exactly I don't know. Maybe it's just his British accent cracking into his American no, accent. No, I think he's doing he exactly that. what you're saying. Yeah, but, but again, whatever. different time, right? But I agree. I love that shower scene. Uh, it's one of those moments when the juxtaposition of thriller and comedy would work in a single scene in a movie like that because it happens before a big revelation about him being a, him, you know, him. When 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 uh, Bartholomew calls and says, you know, he is not Carson. Di- Carson Dial didn't have a brother, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so 
what what could have led into a very dramatic sequence of you know like oh my god like I can't trust this guy we get again the uh, another revelation yeah. that she buys into as well yeah. like I feel if they had cut all. that sequence like the second reveal from that and just had her, her like if they started creating this mistrust. From this point on, there would have been more tenseness to it, but they didn't want to do that because they're making a romance comedy. Mm-hmm. So they had to have a romantic scene on the scene, despite you know the plot of the movie doing what it had to do going through. It's like, well, we have a trajectory we're following on the screenplay all the way through, but we got to make sure you know we're having those romantic comedy elements peppered in as well. Mm-hmm. So again, yeah. multiple genres kind of hurting the script. But going back to Cary Grant, yeah, he was great. Um, Audrey Hepburn, despite, you know, the failing, the, the damage done uh, that I feel the screenplay kind of made her character, as you said, kind of a gormless, uh, someone who's not very intelligent, especially in their scenes with Cary Grant in, in regarding very, very naive, very much like that. Um, I still found that in the scenes when she was given, no matter what, she rose above the material and she handled herself really good, uh, the guy was Gideon. He was okay. Yeah, uh, he was the and weakest. Scobie, in my you know George Candy being menacing. He 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 did it well. Um, I liked Sylvie. I'm pretty sure John Louis was dubbed. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It just felt like it was dubbed. I'm I don't know. Pretty sure his it just voice. felt like his voice. Yeah, probably some American kid, and they just gave him a French accent. He feels like he's like ten years older than he's how he than he is. But anyway, uh, eight and a half. Wow, cool, Jeff. So for acting, I'm gonna think I'm gonna give it. Um, I'm gonna give it an eight. Uh, like I said, I liked all of them. Um, Gideon annoyed me, and the James Coburn. The one scene that I didn't like of James Coburn uh, was when he was calling uh, Cary Grant um, a greenhorn, a greenhorn, and a nincompoop. Like I was like, okay, just shut up that- already. That yeah, definitely it, dates the movie. Like, well, mm-hmm. I don't care about that. Like it's just John how he kept Ford repeating Western. it, and his voice—he he started to end up sounding like some like Disney villain. I'm like, shut up! I get it, <laughs> you know, because like he, the intensity and sort of like the the, the mysterious and then uh, of his character, I feel was it was definitely lessening when he kept talking. Like, just okay, leave it at that. Uh, but everyone else, I did enjoy. I thought it was mm-hmm. a very good sort of cast of characters, different types of characters. Um, I felt everyone pretty much had chemistry in this film. Oh, yeah. I felt it. it was pretty good, especially in, in like that sort of group dynamic of the old soldiers. I didn't really feel like they. It didn't feel like they were a group, you know, from the same platoon or regiment or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but regardless, like it still worked. Uh, but uh, I, I would and. I mean, I was I loved Audrey Hepburn in this. Like, I her comedic timing was really good. Like, I really like that thing. She's like, "Oh, you don't need these." She puts on the glasses. Oh, you need them. Like, that was funny. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Uh, just like you know, she she had some really good comedic delivery, and uh, you know, uh, I I really liked her in that. So I actually give the acting pretty high. Uh, pretty high marks. Uh, it's one I mean, of the big things in the movie, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I give it. I give it an eight. Yeah, that's. I'm sticking to that number now. I'm also going to point part of my high acting marks too, and I neglected to mention this. And this is just a quick mark, a quick point. Is I thought Walter Matthau was excellent oh, in this movie. I didn't mention him, but mm-hmm. yes, I thought he was very. He was very good. I liked him. Yeah, uh, yeah. If you want to carry on into into Matthau, you mentioned him earlier in the in the scene, Scott, in the in, in the uh, in the show, Scott. So with Walter Matthau thrown in there and the other actors, what was your mark on the acting? 
I went for an eight as well. Um, Hepburn is the problem for me here, but not as an actor. She's a problem for me here in the way her character is rendered. Uh, as, but I've already Ooh, yes. talked about that. That's a story point, and I am not. I am not going to fault acting for story, which is something that yeah. I always struggle with, particularly in the Bond films. So uh, Hepburn is very good here, and Jeff's spot on with her comedic mm-hmm. timing. It's really fun to watch, even if mm-hmm. I don't always understand why she's sure. doing and being directed the way she is. <laughs> I yeah. I like watching her. She is fantastic. She's very sharp. Um, yeah. Cary Grant's having fun. The ensemble yeah. cast around them is good. I wouldn't say it's excellent, but it's very, very good. Um, I don't feel like the. I don't feel like you're going to be bored watching these people perform. No. So I went yep. for an eight. I think I'm on board with you guys. It's it's one of the strongest strongest points of the film, which brings us guys to atmosphere. So Scott, you take off with the uh, with with the atmosphere. What did you give it? Uh, I gave atmosphere a seven, which I'm aware of is lower than I would like to give it. Um, I feel like Mancini's score for me is is really the, the film's greatest asset, and I don't say that just as a music fan, but I say that as it's it it's the consistency and it's the thing that I feel helps and lifts up the film in these moments where it's kind of confusing for me. Like, what am I supposed to be feeling? The music kind of allows me to know this is where you are now, genre wise. Um, mm-hmm. The film itself, atmospherically, I find like it kind of operates on. Uh, um, like a, like a whoopee multiple cushion. levels, yeah. Well, multiple yeah. levels, but but at the same time, the principle is is a bit like a whoopee cushion, isn't it? For a thriller, like you've got this, you've got this this moment of intrigue or seriousness, and then there's the release of gas or air at the end of it, like <laughs> the sort of cathartic fart. It's just like a yeah comes at the end yeah. of a gag or a joke or a, or a winked eye or something. And mm. in fact, maybe I could coin that term whoopee cushion thriller. Now that I think of it. Uh, there's no money in it. There's no money in it. For I, I think this is but, kind of like an early dark you know. comedy. You know, it, like the, the yeah. point of this movie is an early oh, dark comedy. Oh, there's definitely dark comedy. But I would because, be. because, but because of still how conservative the values were at the time this movie came out, mm-hmm. they couldn't really get into the darker stuff or make it mainstream until years later. But, so that's why dark comedies have a great jump of nowadays have a lot better tone overall, overall through because they mm-hmm. can use pathos in a, in, in a very uh, versatile way. This is still stuck in, in just basically Frankensteining genres together, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, seven for my atmosphere, guys. Uh, it, it is the mishmash that kind of brings me down a bit. Music, I loved it. Uh, Love the music, but, you know, the settings are good. The, the st- It's a good, seven's a good mark. It's not a bad mark, yeah, but it, it's a good, um, it's a yeah. bare mark, man. I, I just felt the whoopee cushion thing kind of, meh. Yeah. Eh, let the air out. The juxtaposition, yeah, is, is, is a bit jarring <laughs> for sure. Anyway. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Scott. Uh, I did go one point higher. I went with an eight for atmosphere. I thought Donan was able to give, you know, uh, for each genre that he was showing in the film, he gave proper tone to each of those types of genres, each of those scenes or moments depicted. And I thought he kind of was very versatile, jumping back and forth, like Cary Grant on the on the balconies, you know, like I thought he did that <laughs> with, with the plum. Uh, he, did, he did that quite well. Uh, despite the fact that as a whole, the atmosphere just doesn't quite gel together for me. Um, there wasn't really any sort of like, you know, really common atmospheric feel to the movie. Paris was a character kind of in itself that this was this merry-go-round that everyone is doing this charade on, you know, and, and maybe that connects to the spinning fidget spinners in the, uh, in the opening uh, credits there. Good point. Yeah. Good point. Yep. You know, it comes so, back to, yeah, sure. I kind of like how that all connected. So visually, uh, I thought atmosphere was good for each of the scenes. 
I really liked the score. Mancini's score was a constant, uh, just propped everything or elevated everything for me on there. And uh, I, I thought Donan did a great job with that, in my opinion. Um, the real weakness, I think, again, is probably the screenplay. Mm-hmm. But in terms of sto- how the story is, in terms of the narrative, not of the dialogue, of course. Oh, yeah. So in the end, I give it, uh, I give it an eight. And that brings you to 24, Josh. I'm at a 20.5. So, Jeff, last word on atmosphere. and we'll get uh, to My atmosphere, I, again, I have uh, made a couple of adjustments. Uh, but I, I, I'm at 8. Um, okay, cool. For it. I, I did, I did uh, enjoy it. I think the atmosphere is quite good. Uh, Paris is, like you said, it's a character. Um, but the overall feel, like it... Again, because of, of how the whole film kind of it, it kind of uh, shows itself, it, there is good atmosphere. Again, there's a lot. It's mostly like uh, interior, and it's nice interiors, like, again you know, with hotels and stuff like that. So there isn't a lot of external stuff except for some of the stuff at the beginning, and you know some of the the outdoor stuff. Which uh, are we are we agreed upon that that was actually um, Notre Dame or that wasn't just like uh, that? I don't think that was. Uh, yeah. yeah. Again, I'm going to check. I'm going to check it. But oh, yeah. and then I'll let's say, on let's the say yes. Let's just say yeah. safe yes. But the atmosphere, I thought, I, I felt pretty good. Like it kept me in the film. Um, but I, again, I think eight, eight. I mean, eight's pretty generous, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Um, Again, because it goes through all these different genres. It's like a fruitcake. There's so many little elements that I feel work. Uh, and so... And then you get I the mean, nuts in the fruitcake, which aren't so great. No, exactly. Which here is spr- you know, sprinkled here and there, which I would normally take out because I don't raisins. like fruitcake. Oh, yeah. Ooh. What the hell are you eating? The, uh, why are you eating a fruitcake if you don't like nuts and raisins? Actually, you're right. Why, you why, would, you, why would you buy I a fruitcake if you don't want to eat Do you know how many that? times I've had a fruitcake in my life? Once. Yeah, well, and, okay. Uh, well, your score is the highest, dude. You're you're a twenty four point five, so you I like know, this because I I love the I love the well, I love this film. Uh, <laughs> but the the atmosphere is good. I mean, I I felt like you know it did feel like I was in Paris, and like so they did a good job with that. And uh, yeah, the, the period stuff good. is really nice. Yeah, the period, yeah, exactly. It feels like oh, well, not that I was there, but you know, early sixties Paris. Um, it felt like it, um, and I. I don't know. Like it, it worked for me. I don't. You guys pretty much explained the rest of it, so I don't have a lot more to add to that. But I gave it. I gave it eight. Good and that does that does bring you to a twenty four point five. And Josh, you're at a twenty four, and I'm at a twenty point five. So although there were differences, you know, with how we saw the story um, and and the writing, particularly for Regina's character, we all agree that that charade is a good time. And uh, I oh, think yeah. this was an inspired choice for for our three non bonds. And I, I think, guys. I think we did we well. We all had good choice. We all had we good choices. Well. Yeah, it was fun. I enjoyed this season's oh, yeah. little mini series. Hey, it's funny. I forgot to mention Mancini because when I was listening to the score just by itself, I was like, "Man, I need this. Uh, I need That's this great. final." It really, it's is really good. good. I really, really enjoyed it. Again, like the Maurice Binder, like you could really feel the Bond mm. feel to that, and just the other sort of like you know jazzy kind of bossa nova stuff going on there, and uh, and even the, the suspenseful aspects of pieces of the score are really well well sort of inputted in there and uh, it, it's a it's a wonderful it's a wonderful score uh it, it is so that's another that's and, and I, a good now that i think about it i think that's another reason why i, I scored it i did score it so high is because the the score was so well uh placed and used scores mm-hmm. play a big part in atmosphere yeah. yeah of course they do so yeah. 
that's three non-bonds done for this season. Yeah. So now we're moving on to something else. So what do we got next on the plate, Scott? Yeah, next coming up, guys, we're going to welcome uh, Chris Wood back to the show. Right. And yeah, in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to uh, go through the, the music written for The World Is Not Enough. We, uh, yeah. we Pining such for twine. Pining for twine, yeah. We had such good fun doing uh, the 50th anniversary of Diamonds Are Forever with Chris that we've invited him back for the for for another soundtrack episode. We usually do a couple of season and we gave him the choice and he's really keen to do The World Is Not Enough. So looking forward to that because we haven't really deep dived on David Arnold yet. This will be a chance to do that. So yeah, Bond on Vinyl will be uh, visiting us soon here on Bond by Numbers. It will be great fun. And guys, just before we sign off, um, once again, uh, if you don't have a copy of... uh, from Taylor's with Love by Pete Brooker and Matt Spacer. Go, go fetch yourselves a copy. You'll, uh, you will not be disappointed. And Josh, you're and the Dutch girl and the Dutch girl. Yep, uh, the story of Audrey Hepburn. Uh, the author again, Josh. Robert Madsen. Robert Madsen. So yeah, two two great books here that we referenced in in the show. And uh, Jeff, you got a book you're reading right now? You want to throw up there? <laughs> uh, the Archie Double Digest. No. <laughs> yeah, the Ottawa Citizen. No, no. Archie. Better Double than Digest. Riverdale, man. Better than Riverdale. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, yeah, that's right. Riverdale's like where they're all sleeping with each other, right? It's ridiculous. Yeah, and it's like, like Jug- Twin Peaks meets like Veronica <laughs> Mars, but it's in Riverdale. It's weird. I see. Not even Veronica Mars caliber, man. You know, it's it, like, it, it's, it's something else. Someone it's jumped the shark so much. Like, I'm surprised that they just don't live. I don't know. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I've heard that it might actually be continuing on just for the sake of money laundering. That's sure the rumor that I heard. Yeah. Wow. I'm sure it is. That's a subreddit thread, that one. Yeah. Hey man, frogs turn gay and the earth is flat. What can I say? <laughs> what can you say? You've said enough, BFG. You've said enough. Right, guys. Well, look, take care of yourselves and everybody listening. Uh, thanks very much for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed our little rundown of Charade. Uh, I've had a lot of fun, and this is a good rewatchable film, uh, even with its uh, stylistic or its atmospheric inconsistencies. I've, I've enjoyed this, guys. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Take care, and Later, we'll see guys. you. See you back here soon for uh, our next episode of Bomb by Numbers with the inimitable Chris Wood. Au revoir. Cheerio. Cheerio.